Hello there, welcome to May Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're going over the full card for UFC Fight Night, Amanda Lemos versus Jessica Andrade, also known as UFC Vegas 52. There's 13 total bouts in a card starting at 6 o'clock p.m. on Saturday, 23rd of April. This event's being held in UFC Apex, which is the smaller cage. We'll go over each fight one fight at a time, give you our favorite pick to win, discuss the analytics, go over some of the background of each of the fighters, and hopefully giving you the right picks in this card. We're not gonna go over any parlays or prop bets. We save that for our prop show called Pick Your Poison, so join us for that on Friday. Anyway, with that said, guys, let's jump into it with the first fight the prelim card. We'll work our way all the way through the main card. Here we go. All right, the prelim opens up with a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between Mike Jackson, who goes by The Truth, and Dean Barry, who goes by The Sniper. These are very two inexperienced fighters, about six fights between the two of them combined. Dean Barry is 4-1 overall. He's minus 1,125 on the money line right now. He's based out of Dublin, Ireland, and yes, he is friends with Conor McGregor. 29 years old to nine months, so he'll be 30 years old soon. We have him listed as 5'10 on height and tapology with no reach. He's out of SBG Charleston. As for the truth, Mike Jackson, he's 0-1. Not a great record by any means. A plus 700 underdog on the money line. He's out of Houston, Texas. 37 years young, 6'2 in height, so about a 3-inch height advantage. And a 74-inch reach, pretty long arms. He's out of 4-ounce fight club. Now, this fight was booked three times, I believe, before. This is the fourth time it's been booked. Not sure why. At some point, Mike Jackson hasn't fought in a while, was looking for a fight. He's actually a journalist by trait and does some photography. At some point during the downtime, he asked the UFC if he could be a photographer, and they said no, but they wouldn't give him a fight. This is hilarious. This is the result of UFC doing so many events, and I'm not complaining. I want UFC every single weekend, but the reality is, here's the result. You're getting prelim fights with guys who probably don't even qualify to fight in PFL or Bellator at this point. For Dean Barry, he he is 4-1 overall, about to be 30 years old, does have some good training partners, comes from a pretty good gym, but the reality is it's very low mixed martial arts. I'm not going to do a thorough breakdown here. Not worth our time. I'm going to choose Dean Barry. The problem is here with the money line at 1125 you can't really bet it, and I would not parlay this. Do not parlay big numbers like this, because when it blows up your parlay, the first thing you realize is, what value did I get out of this? What value would I get out of a minus 1125 Now, if you're using big numbers and you're betting 100 bucks, 200 bucks per parlay, It'll add something, but it doesn't add enough. I'd rather go ahead and find myself a minus 110, a pick and fight that I feel good about, and put that into a few leg parlay. At 1125, don't touch it. Dean Barry should win the fight. We can watch it. We can enjoy this freak show. Mike Jackson, again, is a journalist. I'm not sure what he's doing in the octagon, but nonetheless, the fight's happening. And again, the UFC has to fill these spots. Look at Chase Sherman. He's the last minute replacement on this fight card. He was, in essence, cut. He wasn't even in the UFC. He had just been let go. They needed somebody to get beat up. They sign him up. We needed somebody for Dean Barry to fight. He's friends with Conor McGregor. The UFC loves Conor McGregor. And so here we go. We got the fight. Not much of a breakdown, but just wanted to give you some feedback on this fight. Didn't decide to do much film study. I did do a little film study, though. If you look down the film library below, you'll see some links there for this fight in the description. Do not parlay Dean Barry. If there's anything you're going to bet this fight, I would take the under. I believe Dean Barry at some point gets Mike Jackson out of there. If the under is not too bad of a price, minus 250-ish around there. Maybe parlay that, maybe play that straight up, but you don't want to touch this 1125 and do not parlay it. All right, guys, on to the next one. Here we go. Next up, the premium cards will be a light heavyweight bout at 205 pounds between Felipe Linz from Brazil and Marcin Pratchnell from Poland. Pratchett was 15 and 5 overall, 2 and 3 in his last 5 fights. A slight favor here in the money line at minus 120. He's, he's based out of Amsterdam, 33 years old, 6 foot 3 in height with a 74 inch reach. He's out of the gym called Tatuchin Dojo Deventer. As for Mr. Philip Linz, who goes by Monstro, he's 14 and 5 overall, about the same exact experience and almost the same record as Marcin. He's 3 and 2 in his last 5 fights. Slight dog here at plus 100 in the money line. He's based out of Rio Grande do Norte, Brazil, 36 years old, 6 foot 2 in height, so 1 inch shorter, and a 78 inch reach, so a 4 inch reach advantage there for Philip Linz. He's out of American Top Team, very good gym. As for the votes on Tapology, it looks like Prochnow is the favorite, getting 77% of the votes here compared to 23% of the votes coming in for Linz. I do agree. It's not going to be a thorough breakdown. I only watched a little bit of film, didn't have time to do a deep dive. And quite honestly, these early playing fights right now, 
kind of trying to stay away from them altogether. I'm not sure I'm going to bet any of these early premium fights because there's just so much wishy-washy shit going on. But I do like Marcin Pratch now, and here's why. You got Philip Lins coming down from heavyweight to light heavyweight. Never a good move, especially as you're getting older. It's usually not the recipe for success, put it that way. And with Philippe Lins, he also hasn't fought since 2020. Been about a two-year layoff. And the last time he fought, he lost by knockout in round one to Tanner Bozer. Again, no offense to Tanner Bozier, but he's kind of been up and down. Knocked out in round one. His prior fight before that, Andre Olovsky loses by decision. So he wasn't doing very well at heavyweight. Now he's dropping back down. Two-year layoff. Over the last two years, he had six bouts canceled. He was supposed to fight OSP. Three times he got canceled against Ben Rothwell. A fight against Mays was canceled. And against a fight against Ozmont was canceled. Not sure what was going on. The bottom line is he's now supposed to be losing weight. Was pretty big in the past. Upwards of 245, 250. Don't love him coming down at this point in his career. I think Prachino, who's made some big improvements recently, has a two-fight winning streak. He's fought three times in the last two years. So a lot more active. He beat Khalil Roundtree and Ike Villanueva, who's on his card. Ike Villanueva, okay, not the best victory. But Khalil Roundtree, looking pretty good. He beat him by decision. So bottom line is... The arrow's pointing towards Prochino. I'd like him to win the fight. How are we going to play it? The money line's perfect. It's a pick him. Play him straight up. I would have put more than a quarter of a unit, half unit. I would not go aggressive with this fight because there is a chance that Philip Leans comes in here. He's got decent power, fought in the heavyweight division, surprises Pachinel. Pachinel's had some chin issues in the past. So bet this with caution. If you want to bet the fight going under, that's probably a good spot too. I don't think the fight goes the full distance. I think someone here gets the victory within those three rounds. But again, back to the money line. There's some value there at minus 125. I like Martin Pachinel. Let's move on. The next fight, the prelim card is going to be a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between Preston Parsons, who goes by pressure, and Evan Elder, who goes by the Phenom. This fight was a late addition. Here we are still Wednesday evening, very late, and the prop bets are still not available for you. So we'll just touch it up a little bit, give you some background as much as we can, and we'll move on quickly. So for the Phenom, he's 7-0, undefeated, based out of Deerfield Beach, Florida, 25 years young, 5'9 in height with a 71 inch reach, out of Sanford MMA. Very good gym. As for Preston Pressure Parsons, 9-3 overall, pretty good record, 4-1 in his last five fights. Also out of Florida, Jacksonville Beach to be exact, 26 years old, 5'11 in height, about a 2-inch height advantage, with a 72-inch reach, a 1-inch reach advantage for Preston Parsons. He's out of Elevate MMA. As for the numbers coming in on Tapology, Parsons is the favorite, getting 59% of the votes here, only 41% of the votes coming in for Elder. I don't agree with the public votes here. I do think, actually, Elder has the slight advantage, specifically through the wrestling. He's got a decent wrestling background, hasn't fought very good competition, neither guy has, but he's undefeated. I think this is a good setup fight for him to come in here, get some experience. For Elder, it'll be his first UFC fight. For Preston Parsons, it'll be his second. In Preston Parsons, UFC debut. He fought Daniel Rodriguez. Very good fighter. Loses round one via TKO. Not the worst loss because Rodriguez is a pretty good fighter in his own right. Nonetheless, though, I think Evan Elder here comes in as the better, brighter prospect. He goes to 8-0, uses his wrestling and his grappling. Maybe not the most exciting affair. Probably taking the over makes sense here. These guys are evenly matched. I'm thinking the fight starting round three is another good spot as well. These prelim fights tend to be the ones that really get the weirdest scorecards. These guys are not name brand yet. I'm going to take Evan Elder to win the fight, but not going to put much money on it at all. I'll have it in my lottery parlay and I'll have Evan Elder on that parlay piece but again 93 7-0 second ufc fight first ufc fight i say sit back crack open a beer enjoy it but i like evan Elder to win the fight probably by decision Next fight in the car is going to be a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between the Asian fighter Arvichi Lang, who goes by the Mongolian murderer, and Cameron Elise, who goes by Kamchita, who hails from England. Mr. Kamchita is 10-5 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, a dog here at plus 185 on the money line. He's about to be 31 years old, 5-9 height with a 71-inch reach out of BMF Ranch, also did some training at Jackson Week MMA. As for Arvichi Lang, he's 20-11-0 overall, so about double the experience in the cage, 3-2 in his last five fights, a minus 25 favorite. He hails from Inner Mongolia, China, which is why he goes by the Mongolian murderer. He's 28 years old, 9 months, 5'7 in height with a 69.3 inch reach, and he's out of Jin Du Martial Arts Club. As for height and reach, they're comparable, but there'll be a slight advantage there for Cameron Lee in the reach and height department.
Second. As for the numbers on Tapology, Arichi Lang is the favorite. He's 77% of the votes here compared to 23% of the votes coming in for Elise. It makes sense. I also like Arichi Lang to win the fight as well. Let's take a glance at the striking numbers in these two fighters. For Arichi Lang, averaging 6.03 per minute. Okay, not so bad. Good output. But absorbing 8.30 per minute. Very negative ratio. He's getting hit 8.3 times per minute. And it makes sense. When you watch him fight, the hands are low. His head movement is not very fast. He takes a lot of punches. He's never been knocked out. So he's got confidence in his chin. 31 total fights, never been knocked out. He's only 28 years old. He's probably th still thinking, I cannot be knocked out. He's been knocked down by guys like Molina. But you know what? Cameron Elise is like, I got you, bro. I got one better for you. Because Cameron Elise is landing 1.92 per minute and absorbing 5.58 per minute. So low volume on the output and then getting cracked at almost five and a half strikes per minute. That's a terrible ratio. As for takedowns, Richie Lang is averaging two takedowns for 15 minutes compared to Cameron Elise, who's averaging zero takedowns for 15 minutes. Now, granted, Cameron Elise has only fought one UFC fight. These stats are only based on that one fight. For takedown defense, Cameron Elise has 0% takedown defense. And for Richie Lang, 54%. Let's talk back on these two fighters. For Richie Lang, he was born in Mongolia. That's why he goes by the Mongolian murderer. But he's actually of Chinese nationality. He was motivated by his father's folk wrestling background to get into mixed martial arts. His name means universe in Mongolian. He's done some training at the Shanghai Performance Institute, which is sponsored by the UFC. He was fighting in the Win Ling Fang promotion before he signed the UFC. Their most notable fighter, their alumni, includes Israel Adesanya, who was fighting in that promotion before he went to the UFC. He went 10-4 in WLF, winning his last six fights in a row. He signed to the UFC 2021. He's 0-2 to the UFC. Two opponents in his tapology we'll talk about. His last opponent, Cody Durden, 2021 decision loss. He came in as a plus-145 underdog. Keep in mind, Durden is 1-2-1 in his last four fights, so he's not necessarily lighting up himself. He got taken down very early in round one and could not get back up. He averages two takedowns per fight. He couldn't get Durden down at all. Matter of fact, he got taken down, got grappled, and that's how he lost the fight. I thought Durden was very tired in round two. There was an opportunity there for Richie Lang to take advantage of that. He just seemed, didn't seem to do it. He ends up fighting a very boring fight, doesn't close distance enough, doesn't land enough, gets out-wrestled, gets out-grappled, and loses by decision. His prior fight, Jeff Molina. Now, this fight's a little more exciting. 2021 decision loss. He got knocked down about three times in the fight. From one standpoint, you're like, okay, he recovered, has a decent chin, still got knocked down three times. He came in as a minus 105 pick'em, so he was even money coming into the fight. He got his ass beat in that fight. He showed me two things in that fight. One, he could take an ass whooping. And number two, even while getting an ass whooping, he still comes forward. In a close fight, that forward pressure, that forward momentum, just coming forward the entire time, that could garner him a victory in a close fight. His stand-up defense, terrible. Getting hit eight times per minute, not a good thing. His hands are low. He has way too much confidence in his chin. He's fought about 31 total fights and never been knocked out. At 28 years old, he probably has too much confidence in his chin. He's been knocked down, but not knocked out. He has to strip his stand-up defense. Molina picked him apart and beat his ass. He was bleeding. He was beat up. But again, he kept going forward, showed a lot of heart in that fight. The things I like about Arichi Lang, I like the heart. I like the fact that he wants to fight. He doesn't back down. He keeps moving forward. He's also very durable. He's only been finished twice in his career, and those two times were by submission, not a knockout. And the forward pressure. It's going to matter. In a close fight, you want to be betting on the guy who's moving forward, engaging, has two takedowns per 15 minutes, can use at least one takedown in this fight to get around, has forward pressure. My concerns for Vichy Lang, the stand-up defense. It's a nightmare. He's got to get his hands up, improve his head movement, something. In this fight, he probably overcomes that because the forward pressure will be enough to stymie Elise. But the thing is, Elise will have an open target. His head's wide open. It's got to get better at his stand-up defense. He's a very one-dimensional fighter. He doesn't seem to have any kind of kicking attack, and his ground attack it's dependent upon who he's fighting. If he fights a good wrestler, like for example against Cody Durden, former state champion, no wrestling. If he fights this guy right here, I don't know what to expect. Will he use the takedowns? He should use at least one takedown at some point to win a round, but he tends to regress back to the fighter who he is. A stand-up fighter, not a kickboxer, just straight-up boxer with a karate stance. And he has yet to register a UFC win. That's not a good thing. He's got to pop his cherry and get a win. Hopefully this is a fight. 
Now, as for Cameron Elise from Britain, he fought in Cage Warriors, BAMMA, Brave CF, and Bellator part of the UFC. He signed with the UFC 2020. He's currently 0-1 in the UFC. He hasn't fought in two years, and he has two children. His one opponent we're going to talk about is Kyler Phillips, his one UFC matchup, 2020 round two TKO loss. He got murdered in that. W was not even close. I don't recall Kyler Phillips being much of a takedown guy. Kyler Phillips did everything and anything he wanted to do in that fight. He landed pretty much every strike, kick, punch, body shot. He took down Cameron Elise at will. No big deal. It was no problem. He basically dominates the guy. Now, Cameron Elise came in there as a plus 300 underdog, so he wasn't expected to win the fight, but it was not the best showing, and he hasn't fought in two years. Unless he made some massive improvements in the last two years, and he is pretty young still, I don't see how he beats a guy like Avicii Lang, who's not super skilled. He's got his own holes in his game. But the forward pressure, the zombie approach, that Korean zombie approach is coming forward with no regard for his own safety. When you watch him against Kyler Phillips, he just simply doesn't look very good. Not really sure how he got signed to the UFC. I could be wrong. Maybe he comes out here, two years, made an evolution. Bottom line is, I think the Kyler Phillips fight sort of says it all. Now, some things I do like about Cameron Elsie. He's got a 100% finish rate. Yeah, you heard that right. All 10 of his wins were by finish. He's 10-5 and five overall. All 10 wins by either submission or TKO. He trades at a very good gym in Jackson Week MMA, along with his hometown gym in England. So he's been around some good coaches and good partners, has maybe evolved, again, two years off, coming in here, maybe made some improvements, should be pretty healthy, shouldn't have any injuries, right? Now my concerns for him, the two-year layoff, that could be a positive or negative. The negative side is, it's been 48 months, hasn't been in a cage, hasn't fought a real fight. Does he have any ring rust? Does it take him a little bit of time to get acclimated back in the octagon? We'll see. Watching the fight against Kyler Phillips, he would throw big shots and be way off balance, which also led to him getting taken down down or he's getting countered. He holds his hands so low. If you're in a boxing stance, why are your hands down here? You have no chance of blocking anything. Now you can't block everything. After some time, your arms will get beat up, your hands get beat up, you're better off moving and shaking, using your footwork. The point is, if your hands are low, it takes a long time to bring them up. You're just so open to get hit. And so his hands were all over the place. Sometimes he had them like up here, like some kind of a tie stance. They were never in guard. They were never like in a Brandon Moreno situation where you can actually block what's coming. And that's why both these guys have bad striking numbers. They're both in a negative. The fights we watched around this fight, we watched Arichi Lang versus Jeff Molina in 2021, Arichi Lang versus Cody Durden in 2021, and Cameron Elsie versus Kyler Phillips in his lone UFC fight in 2020. To watch those fights, go down below in the video description here on YouTube, and you'll find three links available as part of our free video library. Before I forget the props I like for this fight, the fight with the distance, no. I like the fight going under, under two and a half, not the distance. I think Arichi Lang puts too much pressure on the Cameron Elise, eventually finishes him. So also, Reach land by TKO. I like that prop. The safest prop, though, I think here is the fight starts round two. If that's somewhere under minus 300, that's a parlay piece. I like that spot a lot because I see Avicii Lang maybe winning round one, but Cameron Elise, young fighter, coming in here two years off, should have made some improvements, been fighting at some good gyms. He should come in here at least get to round two. So the fight starting round two, if that's minus 300, I'm looking at that as a parlay piece. That's the breakdown again, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like or unlike. If you don't like our content and you disagree with us, hit that down marker. It's okay. We can live with it. But if you do like the content, like it, share it, subscribe, leave a comment. We appreciate you guys being here. We'll see you guys. All right, boys and girls, next fight in the card is going to be a light heavyweight battle at 205 pounds between the American fighter Ike Hurricane Villanueva versus Tyson Kangaroo Paws Pedro. Mr. Pedro hails out of Australia. He's 7-3 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. Hasn't fought in a few years. He's a minus 650 favorite right now on the money line. Huge favorite. He's 30 years old, 6-3 in height with a 79-inch reach. He's out of Lions High Performance Center. As for Hurricane Ike Villanueva, he's 18-13 overall, 1-4 in his last five fights. A bit of a rough stretch. He's plus 460 on the money line. If you like a dog, this guy might interest you. He hails out of Houston, Texas. 
Texas, 38 years old, six foot one in height with a 73 inch reach. He's at a four ounce fight club. So height and reach wise, a big advantage there for Pedro. Look at the numbers on Tapology. It appears that Pedro is also the big favorite, 94% of the votes here. Only 6% of the votes here coming in for the American fighter. I do agree with the public. I think Pedro wins the fight. He has had a long layoff though, which we'll go over, which is a little bit concerning. And at minus 650, he's a huge favorite. He's been a big favorite before and he's lost. Kind of concerns me overall. Anyway, the striking numbers. Pedro's landing 2.7 per minute, absorbing 2.55. Positive ratio, but barely positive. As for Ike Villanueva, he's like, listen, you can hold my beer on this one. He's landing 4.35 per minute, absorbing 7.91. Terrible ratio, almost receiving double the amount of input versus output. Never good to see that. I imagine in this fight, that's also going to be a problem for him. Tyson Pedro is a very good striker. Pedro landing 0.74 takedowns per 15 minutes, also 0.74 for Villanueva. Neither guy is much of a wrestler or a grappler. They're more stand-up strikers. For Tyson Pedro in the past, he has been taken down, does a pretty good job of getting back up. With 52% takedown defense, he has to get back up. As for Ike Villanueva, he's got 100% takedown defense. One of the lonely good stats we have here at Ike Villanueva. As for the background of these two fighters, let's talk about Mr. Pedro first. He hails from Australia. He was born a Spanish and Australian parent. He's the son of John Pedro, who's widely known as the guy who brought mixed martial arts to Australia. He's also the former owner of King of the Cage. Tyson Pedro began Japanese jiu-jitsu when he was four years old. Quickly after that, he began Brazilian jiu-jitsu and also did some boxing. He's one of the first fighters in the world to actually fight in a cage in Australia. He has seven black belts in a variety of martial arts. He has a very unique path to how he actually got into the UFC. Here's the story. He fought in Australian Fighting Championship 17. He won the fight via rear naked choke. He ends up calling Dana White directly. Somehow he got directly to Dana White. He calls him and says, listen, I want to get on the UFC Fight Night card, Whitaker vs. Brunson, which is coming up in Melbourne, Australia. If someone drops off, you have an opening, put me in, coach. And by some fortunate twist of fate, Luke Rockwald withdraws from the fight due to an injury. He had a sprained anterior crucial ligament. Dana White gives the kid a chance, and that's how he made his break into UFC. You know, sometimes in life, it's about picking up the phone, knocking on the door, just being aggressive. Granted, he had a pedigree. People, Some people knew him. I'm sure he didn't get Dana White's number just by looking it up in the phone book. But the bottom line is, he was eager. He went to fight for the UFC, and that's his story for how he got to the UFC. His brother-in-law is Ty Tuivasa. Yes, the man who does the shoey, that's his brother-in-law. He's named after the one and only Mike Tyson. He went performance of the night in UFC versus Khalil Roundtree back in the day. Some opponents he's faced in the past. His last fight in the UFC, 2018, four years ago, he fought Mauricio Shogun Rua. He comes in there round one, looks the best version of Tyson, lands a few... Well, this Tyson, not the other Tyson. Anyway, lands a few really crisp strikes. His striking is very clean right down the pipe. Lands some one-twos. Definitely hurts Rua. He's got Rua staggered, you know, stanky legs, wobbling around. He gets into close little clinch with him. Lands some more shots. Shogun Rua, just being the veteran he is, survives that first round. Because in the first round, it was very close to being stopped at some point. Now, mind you, he came in, Tyson Bidler, that is, as a minus 565 favorite in this fight. Very similar to this fight right here. He was a huge favorite. Not as much as this fight. This fight's even more of a favorite. Anyway, he knocks down Rua in round one. Definitely puts it on him. Nice combinations. He's got Rua hurt. Doesn't finish him. No big deal. And round two is like a tale of two different fights. In round two, he gets taken down by the veteran Rua. Cannot get back up. He gets to a knee. Gets brought back down. Basically, he spends the entire time in round two on his back. Almost a 10-8 round, you could actually argue. So after winning round one, he's at a point now where he really needs round three. Because maybe round two was a 10-8 round. In round three, he comes out. Doesn't look great. Now, we would find out later on he had a torn ACL at some point in the fight. I believe that ACL tear must have happened in round two. Because when you watch the start of round three, nothing has happened yet. And all of a sudden, he goes to step and does like a trip. And it's an awkward trip. Even the commentators are like, what was that? What just happened? Rua sees it, notices there's something wrong, comes right around the way, lands a few hard shots. And then you see Tyson Pedro go down to the ground and ball up. Not really hurt. He was totally fine. Well, his knee was hurt. But I mean, his head wasn't hurt. 
He gets on the stool. They help him out. He's talking right away. He's fine. He's got a little facial damage, got some blood from the round two pounding he took on the ground. But nonetheless, suffers what now would be the beginning of this four-year path of his. There's a story, I believe, on ESPN, but they did a story on him about his comeback. And what ended up happening to him was he suffered not just that ACL tear. Has surgery, comes back, suffers another setback with his MCL, I think in the same knee, then somehow comes back from that and suffers another ACL tail in training. So it's been like four years of this poor man up and down with training, injuries. And if you ever talk to an athlete who's had a long career at any type of sport, whether it's skiing or figure skating, any sport, the one thing that ends up telling you that it's time to hang it up, it's usually the injuries and not just the injury, it's the recovery process. I can't say enough. Recovering from injuries was the worst part of my entire athletic career. The injury itself, sustaining it, whatever. It's not that painful. You get through it. It's the rehabilitation. It chips away at you over time. You can only rehab from so many injuries before at some point you're just mentally exhausted. For Tyson Pedro at 30 years old, he's been through it the last four years. Last time he fought, he was 26. Now he's a 30-year-old young man still. If he were to suffer another major injury, I would imagine he hangs it up and says, I don't want no more of this. Anyway, this path to injuring himself, recovering, this all started against Rua in that fight 2018. Next fight, Vince St. Prue from Canada. 2018 round one submission loss. He came in as a slight favorite, minus 150 in the money line. Now, St. Prue, not a terrible fighter. Definitely been around the block. Okay fighter. But he is one in three in his last four fights. He's lost to Ben Rothwell, Tanner Bozer, and to Jamal Hill. But Jamal Hill's legit. That's my boy. With that said, though, he hasn't been on a great run. And considering that he went in there against this guy, Pedro did, and lost as a slight favorite, not a great look. One more fight, 2017, decision loss to grimy Alir Latifi. When I say grimy, I mean grindy. Like he likes to take the fight to the ground. It's ugly, not usually very exciting, but the bottom line is Latifi knows how to get a win by wrestling and grappling, and Tyson Pedro is not good in that area. Again, Tyson Pedro came to that fight, another favorite, minus 140 money line. He's definitely more talented than Latifi. He's definitely better striker than Latifi, taller than Latifi, has all the physical features you would want in a fighter, but Latifi is the kind of guy where he makes it ugly. And so for Tyson Pedro at that time, I believe he was about 25 years old, a little bit younger, maybe a lesson learned. The things I like about Tyson, he's got an excellent boxing game. His skill set is amazing on the feet. He's also quite tall. He's listed at six foot three, but he looks taller than that. If you look at pictures of him on Instagram and stuff, he's like towering over the everyday person. So very long, tall build, got good, nice reach. And in this fight, he's gonna have a six inch reach advantage. He should be able to use that to his benefit. Ike Villanueva is not the greatest boxer, not the greatest stand-up defense, obviously absorbing 7.91 strikes per minute. But I guess he Tyson using that reach and actually landing some hard shots earlier on in the fight. And that goes to my second point. His hands are heavy. He's got some knockout ability in his hands and now that he's a few years older getting into that range of old man strength i think that he's gonna even be more powerful at this fight i don't see how ike villanueva gets that around one i believe tyson puts it on him pretty early and often now my concerns for tyson pedro it's the obvious things we talked about the injury already i'm not gonna get all back into that but four years being injured recovering coming back and forth does he come in here tentative does he come in here worried about another injury does he come in here nervous it will surely take him some time to acclimate to this environment he just hasn't been in a cage fight in over four years and lastly hasn't shown good grappling skills or wrestling skills really got taken advantage of by the veteran rua it won't be a factor in this fight, but it's a weak part of his game. As for the Hurricane Villanueva, he was born Isaac James Villanueva in Houston, Texas. He works as a machinist full-time as a day job when he's not fighting or in camp. He has three children. He's the former light heavyweight champion in Fury FC. He signed the UFC 2020. He lost his UFC debut against a guy named Chase Sherman, who's also now on this card as a replacement. You never want to have that on your resume. You don't want to be losing to a guy named Chase Sherman, which I shouldn't put it that way. I have nothing against him just hasn't been the best UFC fighter. Let's put it that way. He has a 1-4 UFC record. So Ike has a 1-4 UFC record. Not the best run for him recently. Now, some prior opponents he fought against. He fought Trevin Giles in Legacy FC 2016. Lost that fight, round three submission. He fought Chase Sherman in his UFC debut, as we mentioned, 2020, round two TKO loss. 
He fought Jordan Wright in that same year, round one TKO loss. He fought Nick Negamurano, 2021, round one TKO loss. And he also fought Marcin Prachniao, 2021, round two, you guessed it, TKO loss. His strengths, very active. I give him that. He fought three times last year, twice 2020, and three times 2019. He does have some KO power in his hands. The results are there in topology. His last five wins have all been by TKO. Now, my concerns with Ike Villanueva, the most obvious one, durability has definitely become an issue for him. He's been finished in four of his last five fights. He's been finished in eight of his last nine losses. So clearly the chin is starting to go. And at 38 years old, he's clearly at the tail end of his career. And it's typical that fighters, as they get older, the first thing that starts to go is the chin. And I hate to put it out there. I don't want to put bad juju out there for Ike Villanueva. But if he loses this fight, is there a chance he gets cut? Maybe the UFC wants to keep him around because he's you know, still a bit of a gatekeeper. I mean, this fight here is perfect for Tyson Pedro. They want to see Tyson Pedro get on track. The UFC would like to have this kind of guy from Australia. Good striker. You can see the fans rallying around him. Again, the link to Tai Tuavasa. So they're handing him Ike Villanueva. Could they keep Ike Villanueva on the roster for more fights like this? Maybe. But there is that fear that he has this pressure in the back of his head. This is the send-off fight. And that's usually not a good spot to be in mentally. He could play games with the fighter. There's also extra pressure. If he gets behind at all, he's going to have that extra pressure on him. Like, this is my last fight. I want to get another contract. So just putting it out there. I don't know how that pressure affects him maybe it's the opposite maybe he's saying you know what i got nothing to lose it's my last ufc fight i'm gonna hang it up either way i'm 38 i got three kids i'm a family man and this is gonna be my last fight i'm going out there swinging he lands a shot on tyson pedro and last but not least his last win was over a guy named moria first name venetius i believe brazilian fighter 2021 just last year but here's the thing about moria he's no longer in the ufc and he went 0-4 in the UFC. I'm sorry to take away that win from Ike Villanueva or take shots at that win, but it's just the reality of where he's at right now. He's getting older. He, his last win was against a guy who was 0-4 in the UFC, for, dropped four of his last five fights, and got finished in all four of those fights. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Pedro vs. Rua, 2018, and Villanueva vs. Negro Morano, 2021. To watch those two fights, in the description, you'll see two links as part of our free video library. The last few notes to have these two fighters. Experience-wise, I gotta give the edge to Ike Villanueva. He simply has fought almost double the amount of mixed martial arts fights, and he's fought, what, five times since the last time that Tyson Pedro has fought. Clearly, he has the advantage in that department. For fighter IQ, it's tough here because there is more experience for Villanueva. Clearly, he's been in there a lot, been in there more recently, but Tyson Pedro does train with some very good guys. He comes from a pedigree where, again, his dad was in the fight game. He's been on the mat since he was four years old. Brother-in-law of Tai Tuavasa. He's surrounded by a lot of talent. He's surrounded by good mixed martial arts. So from a fighter IQ standpoint, at a 7-3 and three record, having lost as a big favorite in his last fight, I do question his IQ a little bit. Four years outside the octagon, I don't question his IQ, but then I question, like, experience. You haven't been in there in a minute. So I'm going to rate these guys about the same level when it comes to fighter IQ. For cardio... I didn't like the way Tyson Pedro looked in round three of that fight against Rua. Now, granted, he had an injury, but it was even before that. Didn't look very fresh. Had a good round one and then started to taper off. He's a very big guy. Not super jacked. Doesn't have that over-muscly physique where he sort of gets drained. But still, like, didn't look great. For Ike Villanueva, I don't think he even knows what round three looks like. So it, this fight probably doesn't look good if it gets to round three. And if it does get to round three, the younger fighter here, 30-year-old Tyson Pedro, should have an advantage. But the cardio error is still something I have to see from Tyson Pedro. And for Ike Villanueva, never seemed to have very good cardio anyway. He's more of a stand-up, strike, get in the phone booth, hit you as hard as I can for the first round or two. And if I'm exhausted, I'm exhausted. I get knocked out. Maybe you get knocked out. I don't expect this fight going to round three. As for finishing ability, again, I'm giving them the same score. And the reason being is Tyson Pedro has not been in there in four years. I can't say it enough. He has finished people before that. He's also been finished himself. As for Ike Villanueva, his last five wins have all been TKO wins. Not his last five fights, but his last five wins. So for finishing ability, I'm giving them the same rating. Though I think in this fight here, the best version of Tyson Pedro does knock out Villanueva, no question. As for boxing, I give the edge to Tyson Pedro. His boxing is much cleaner, right down the pipe, better combinations, just better technique, keeps his head up. Ike Villanueva is a little bit more of a brawler when he's boxing. 
He kind of closes his eyes, swings as hard as he can, leaves himself open for counters. There should be plenty of counter opportunities there for Tyson Bidrell. For grappling, not a topic. Neither guy does much grappling. Again, averaging 0.74 takedowns per fight for both fighters. And who has more heart? If you followed anything about Aguilano Wava, some interviews and whatnot, the guy is a very generous, emotional guy, cares about his kids. You know, his kids are in sports. He follows their sports activities. He's a family man. Just overall, very quality person. So I'm not going to question his heart. He usually goes out on his shield. Either he knocks the person out or he gets knocked out. Always puts on at least a good show for us. He's going to go into this fight, maybe a little bit of nerves. I imagine he comes out the best version he can be at 38 years old. But you don't stay in the fight game for almost 30-some-odd fights in the UFC for five or so fights. A lot of things about him that suggest he's got a strong heart, a lot of passion. As for Tyson Pedro, he fought through that ACL tear. That injury happened in round two, came out to round three, still tried to fight. Showed a lot of heart in that situation. He's an Australian... Rugby type of guy. You know, these guys are tough as hell. He's the brother-in-law of Taito Ivasa. I imagine both guys come in here prepared to go out on their shield. Unfortunately, I believe it's Tyson Pedro who knocks out Villanueva in round one. And I say unfortunately because I do like Villanueva. I wish both guys could win the fight. But unfortunately, it's not like that. We can't have a draw. This is not the NFL during the regular season. Anyway, I like Tyson Pedro to win the fight. I like him to win by round one knockout. The best betting spot on this fight is going to be the fight not going to distance. At minus 650, I would caution you to bet on Tyson Pedro. Imagine somehow he sustains another Indian. Injury. Imagine that. It's happened to him both in a fight. It happened to him in training. If that were to happen and he loses the fight at minus 650, the first thing you're going to think is, well, he did lose before as like a minus 500 favorite and got injured in a fight. You know, somehow history has a way of repeating itself. I don't want that to happen to him. I want him to come out here and look good, be young, get a, get his hand raised, get the confidence going. I want more of these guys in UFC. We all do. And for Ike Villanueva, he's passing the torch, right? So I do want to see Tyson do well. But if somehow he were to lose, if somehow Tyson gets caught or clipped somehow, hasn't been hitting a real fight in the cage in four years, there's a lot of reasons to be very careful this minus 650. I'm not going to bet it straight up. I'm not going to parlay it at all. Remember I said this. Do not parlay Tyson Pedro at minus 650. Trust me, you're going to save yourself a lot of heartache when this fight gets to round two or three somehow, and then it becomes like a gas tank thing. He's coming back after four years under the bright lights. There's going to be some emotions going on. He's going to be a little riled up. If round one doesn't go his way, maybe he gets clipped and he somehow loses this fight. I pray you don't have him in your parlays. Put it that way. The best betting spot in this fight is could the fight knock with a distance. That should be something under minus 650. It can't be minus 650. Probably be around like minus 300-ish. Consider this. Two weeks ago, right? Gilbert Burns and Kamzat Chimaya fight. The fight knocked with a distance in that fight was like around minus 300, minus 330. I had it in some parlays. Yeah, I suffered when it went the full distance. I couldn't fucking believe it. But if that was minus 300, we got these two guys here. It's got to be around that same range, if not even better. So bet that spot. Don't take that minus 650. If you're going to parlay something, parlay the fight not going the distance. The second parlay I like is round one or round two, those two parlays for Tyson Pedro ending the fight by some kind of TKO KO. Those are the props I like. That's the breakdown, guys. If you haven't done so already, you know what to do. Please like and subscribe and spread the word about our channel. Tell them the MMA Fight Club does the deepest diving in the entire industry. We give you the background, stats, analysis. We may not always be right, but hopefully we give the people what they want. They want information. They want breakdowns. They don't want to hear a bunch of ums and ahs. And I'm not picking on anybody. Okay, so we'll take it the wrong way, guys. I'm just saying here at MMA Fight Club, we do deep dives. We have analysis. We have our notes all prepared. And matter of fact, pretty soon we'll be making our notes available for you guys absolutely for free. That sums it up, guys. I like Tyson Bailey to win the fight. Good luck with this one. If we're off, if we're missing something here, maybe you have another prop that you like, message us. Send it to us via DM on Twitter or Instagram or post it right here in the video as a comment. Thanks for joining us again, guys. We'll see you soon.
next fight the prelim card is going to be a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between the American fighter Dwight Grant, who goes by the Body Snatcher, and the Russian Sergei Kondosko, who goes by Honda. Sergei is 27, 6-1 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 125 on the money line. He's from Moscow, Russia. 29 years old, 11 months, so about to be 30, 6 foot 1 in height with a 74 inch reach. He's at a fight club number one. As for the Body Snatcher, 11-4-0 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here at plus 105 on the money line. He hails from Brooklyn, New York, 37 years old, 6 foot 1 in height with a 76 and a half inch reach. He trains out of American kickboxing. As for the numbers coming in on Tapology, Kondosko is the favorite, getting 68% of the votes here. Only 32% of the votes here coming in for the American Grant. I do agree, but man, I agree with a pause. Kondosko's had a very long layoff, about three years to be exact. So this fight's coming up. This fight has a lot of question marks. I do have my issues with Grant. I do have some question marks about Kondosko. We'll go over it, but this may be one of the fights where I do the least amount of wagering on this entire card. Let's take a peek at the striking numbers first. For Grant, landing 3.10 per minute, absorbing 2.21. Not very high volume, but at least he has a positive ratio. As for Sergey, even less volume, landing 2.83 per minute, absorbing 1.70. As you can see from the striking numbers, these guys are not very high volume strikers, and their defense is decent. As for the takedown offense, Grant's landing 0 0.60 takedowns for 15 minutes, and for Sergey, 0 0.50. That obviously tells us these guys don't do much wrestling or grappling. For takedown defense, Grant has 70%. As for the fighter profiles, let's get Dwight Grant first. He was born and raised in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, to Guyanese parents. He's still based out of New York City, but does most of his training at American Kickboxing in California. He's a former world kickboxing middleweight champion. He went 3-1 as an amateur fighter. He secured his UFC contract after knocking out his opponent in the second round of Dana White Contender Series in 2018. He's 3-3 three three in the UFC. He earned performance of the night one time in the UFC. He has a purple belt in BJJ and a red belt in Kung Fu. Love seeing the Kung Fu guys. It's a martial art that's one of the oldest forms of martial arts. As for his opponents, he fought Francisco Old Man Trinaldo, 2021 split decision loss. He came in as a plus 120 pick'em. He looked very tentative in that fight. I mean, dare I say intimidated at times. Trinaldo was 43 years old in that fight. Now, I will say this. He's not the typical 43-year-old. The guy's got the fountain of youth. He's got some very good wins recently. He beat McDessie, Bobby Green, Jay Herbert, and obviously he beat Dwight Grant. The reality is he's still a 43-year-old man, and Trinaldo definitely tags him a few times in that fight. When you watch that fight, again, Dwight's very tentative, doesn't push the pace. It's a close fight. Trinaldo even loses a point in round three and yet still secures a win there by split decision. So it gives you an idea. If that point wasn't taken away, Trinaldo wins that fight going away. His prior fight against Stefan Sekulik, who was coming off of a very long layoff. He wins that fight by split decision. My humble opinion, I thought he lost the fight. And I'll explain it to you. He comes in as a minus 200 favorite. Round one was a very close round. And I give it to the commentators. Rogan and company were calling that round correctly. They weren't biased towards either guy. The round's close with 20 seconds to go. Sekulik secures a takedown. Finishes the round on top, 20 seconds of control position. Now, I understand it's only 20 seconds, but in a close round, that should have been enough for Sukluk to win the round. When you check the scorecards for this fight, every single judge had Grant winning round one. It's just blasphemy. I don't get it. I mean, one or two of those judges should have at least thought about giving that round to Sekulik in a split decision fight where Grant gets the win. That ultimately cost him the win there. Now, this is another example of just terrible judging. I don't see how they're judging this. The round was very close. No one got hurt. The output was about the same for both guys. Grant's not a high output guy. So how does he win that round? He finishes on his back. Looking at the media members who scored the fight, most of them had Sekulik winning the fight as well. I'm not crazy here. It looked clearly like Sekulik won round one. Now round two, very close, but Sekulik now gets the lone takedown again. This time he gets about a minute of register control time. As you can imagine, the scorecards, only one judge gave him round two. It's just hard to understand. He definitely should have won round one or two on the judges' scorecards. Instead, only one judge gives him round two. In round three, all three judges give him round three. Ends up in a split decision. The win goes to Grant. Putting it in perspective, Sekulik was coming off a very long layoff. He was a plus, what, 175-ish underdog. I thought he won the fight. Bottom line. That's another example of how Dwight Grant goes to decisions, keeps things close, doesn't push the pace, very low volume. And one more fight before that. Daniel Rodriguez, 2020 round one TKO loss. 
plus 170 underdog. He comes in, nice work early on. He cracks Rodriguez, drops him to the ground. Matter of fact, at one point, the referee steps in almost to stop the fight. Rodriguez is getting cracked. Now give it to Rodriguez. He's trying to survive on the ground, trying to cover up. But the reality is Grant is in position to finish the fight. After being pounded on the ground for a little bit, but still blocking some punches, this goes on for about 35, 45 seconds. Rodriguez works his way back to his feet. And don't you know, as soon as he gets back to his feet, you've got Grant backing up again, like disengaging, like doesn't want to fight. Or maybe he's tired from all the blows that he tried to throw on the ground against Rodriguez. Either way, when the fight gets back to his feet and he sees Rodriguez is kind of recovering, he immediately goes back into like intimidated mode, not engaging, backing up. And then a few seconds later, he gets cracked by Rodriguez and he gets finished. It's a bad look. The bottom line is he had a chance to win the fight. He makes some poor fighter IQ decisions. Maybe he overworks himself, gets tired. As soon as Rodriguez gets back up, he looks intimidated. Like, oh shit, this guy's back up. He's recovering. Now I'm scared. He's mad at me. What am I going to do? If you look at Grant, he looks like an awesome athlete. He's in great shape. But the way he fights is very frustrating. He does not push pace. He does not engage. And even in that fight, when he had a guy hurt, once the guy got back to his feet, he retracted back to that same fighting style of backing up, one punch at a time, not engaging, looking intimidated. Now, the things I like about Grant, he's a very active fighter. He fought twice last year, once in 2020, but he had two cancellations. He also fought twice in 2019. He's faced some pretty good competition in the UFC. I will give him that. He's faced some good level of guys, like guys like Rodriguez, for example. He's got solid cardio. Excellent reach for this division. He'll have a two and a half inch reach advantage in this fight, but usually has even more than that for most of his fights in this division. Just very long arms. He's got a pretty solid chin. He's only been finished one time in his 15 pro fights, and that was against, obviously, Rodriguez. So overall, has been pretty durable. Now, the weaknesses I see for Grant, he lacks finishing ability. In his last few fights especially, his last two wins were via split decision, and his last loss was also via split decision. He slows down at times in fights, lacks volume, throws one, two punches at a time, doesn't really do three, four punch combinations. He'll throw one punch, one kick, lead jab followed by one punch, disengage. Back up for a few seconds, one punch, back up for a few seconds, one, two punches, and then resets. Just doesn't have that high volume, doesn't push the pace, unless obviously he has a guy hurt. When he had Rodriguez hurt, he pushed the pace, jumped up top of him, started landing more punches. He also does that Macy Barber thing where he throws a lot of air jabs. Now for him, I will say it's more of a setup, a feint. But the bottom line is he literally throws about a good 30 to 40 air jabs every single round. And for a guy who has low volume, why don't you focus on getting a little closer? You got the reach with your arms. Start landing some of those punches. And my biggest criticism, he just simply doesn't engage. He looks like he's not looking to fight at times. Like he wants to win the fight in the scorecards. Like he wants to fight as far as distance as possible. And granted, some guys are good at distance, and that's where his game is at. But it's almost to a fault. Like he's looking to fight as far away as possible so he doesn't get hit, doesn't have to engage, one punch at a time. If you put your money behind a guy like Grant, you're going to be frustrated. Even if he gets a win by split decision or some kind of blind judges who help him out, the reality is he's not going to come in there and be dominant and fight like, for example, like Charles Jourdain from Canada. He just doesn't have that gene. Surprising, he's from bed Brooklyn. If you don't know, bed Brooklyn is the home of Notorious B.I.G. I've got some family there. I was born not too far from that hood. And yes, it used to be the hood. Now it's completely gentrified. You got million dollar homes and whatnot. But when I was growing up in the 80s and going back and forth to visit family, that was one of the roughest places to grow up right next to Brownsville where Mike Tyson's from. I don't see that in him. He came from Guyanese parents. Guyanese people are very peaceful. And if you see him on social media, Instagram, comes off as a very like nerdy, nice guy. I don't say nerdy in a bad way. Just doesn't look like the kind of guy who's from Bed-Stuy. He definitely doesn't fight like who's from Bed-Stuy. Anyway, let's move on to Sergei Kondosko. He was born in Russia, grew up in Moscow. He made his pro debut in 2011. He began his pro career with 14 straight wins in the regional Russian scene. Now, he moved up to ACB prior to coming to UFC. And in ACB, he went 3-4, and four, a little bit more of a step up in competition than the Russian regional scene. He signed with the UFC 2019. He has a 1-1 record in the UFC, has trained at some of the top gyms in the world like Tiger Muay Thai and American Kickboxing. His most notable opponents, he fought Rustam Kabalov 2019, his last fight. Now, Kabalov has not fought since then not sure what's going on with this guy 
but pretty legit fighter. The guy's 10-3 overall in the UFC, has a 24-4 overall record. Overall, just a tough opponent. He was a plus-165 underdog in that fight. In round one, Sergey does a good job at defending the takedowns. That's all Rustam wants to do. He's a, he's a takedown artist, a wrestler, a grappler. He's from Dagestan. Unfortunately, though, in round two and three, he can't stop the takedowns now. He gets ragdolled the last two rounds. It's not even close. He doesn't get hurt, but he gets ragdolled. Tons of takedowns. I want to say about six or seven takedowns in round two and three combined. Rustam registers a bunch of control time. And the bottom line is Sergey cannot keep it from taking him down. And it surprises you. Sergey's from Russia. You're thinking all these Russians can wrestle. Not all of them can wrestle. And they're not all from Dagestan like Rustam Kabalov. So he loses that fight there, 2019. And that was his last fight. We'll talk more about this. That was three years ago. That was his last fight. His prior fight, Rostam Akman. Not Rustam, Rostam. 2019 decision win. He came in as a minus 155 favorite. He got rocked in round one by overhand right but did a good job of recovering. He did score a nice knockdown in round two with a combination he finished with a left hook. He got taken down by Rostam shortly after he knocked him down. Again, the problem with him is takedown defense. In this fight, it shouldn't be an issue because Grant's not a takedown guy himself. He even got taken down several times in round three and looked to be behind the scorecards in round three. Now, he wins the fight by decision. I thought he won round two for sure with the knockdown. But round one, round three, very close. He could have easily lost that fight. At the time of that fight, Rostam was looking like a good prospect. He was 6-0 at the time. Since then, he's been cut by the UFC. He's now 6-4, and and he hasn't won a fight in three years since 2019. In any case, that win against Rostam Akman has not aged very well. The things I like about Sergey, he has a good striking ratio, landing almost double the amount of strikes that he receives. He has a pretty good kicking game. He kicks to the body, to the legs, to the head, very flexible. He's also fought 34 total MMA fights, so he's got a lot of experience in the cage. He's a pretty durable fighter. He's only been KO'd one time in his 34 total fights and lost by submission twice. Now, the biggest issue for him, the biggest weakness that I see, needs to increase his volume, but he's fighting a guy like Grant who also has low volume. Who's going to come out here and decide to throw more punches? That person probably wins the fight. And most concerning is he's coming off of a three-year layoff. He hasn't been nearly as active as Dwight Grant. There's a lot of question marks there. In some cases, that layoff could be good. Did a lot of training, got himself in shape, maybe added some more tools. Or he's going to have a bunch of ring rust in the octagon, not the ring. But you get the point. He's going to come in here and maybe have to take a, a round or two just to get adjusted. I hope not. But it does help him in the fact that he's fighting a guy like Grant who doesn't push the pace, doesn't want to engage. It will probably allow him all the time he needs to adjust and get used to being in the cage again. Not to mention Grant will not try to wrestle him or grapple him. He has no wrestling ability at all, averaging 0.5 takedowns per fight. That's not going to be a factor in this fight. He's displayed very poor takedown defense. Again, not going to be a factor in this fight. He isn't able to get up when he gets taken down. Again, not going to be a factor in this fight. The fights we watched right now in the film, we watched Kondosko versus Kabalov, 2019. Kondosko versus Akman, 2019. We watched Grant versus Trinaldo, 2021. Grant versus Sukulik, 2021, and Grant versus Rodriguez in 2020. To watch those five fights, if you look down below here on YouTube, you'll see in the description that we have five links available as part of our free video library. The last few notes on these two fighters, experience-wise, about the same. I'd like to see Sergey be more active, of course, but the reality is he has fought 34 total fights compared to 15 for Dwight Grant. Now, I think Dwight Grant's fought the better competition. He's slightly older at 37 compared to 30 years old here for Sergey. So experience-wise, I'm going to level them out as about equal. Now, fighter IQ, I give the edge to Dwight Grant. Though his fighting style is frustrating, he simply has fought a lot more recently. I don't like that Sergey hasn't fought very much. At 30 years old, not sure what he's waiting for. Maybe he has some things going on in his life, but the bottom line is fighter IQ is a little bit of a question there for Sergey. For cardio, they both have looked decent in round three of their fights. They're not high output guys anyway, so they're not do a lot of high energy moves. Cardio checks out. These guys should be okay if the fight gets to round three. Finishing ability, both very low finish rate. I don't see a lot of power in their punches. They've had some knockdowns, yes, but I don't see them being high level finishers. And again, they don't have that animalistic instinct. They don't come forward very much. They sort of allow the fight to come to them. For boxing, also very similar. Grant will have a reach advantage. He does have some boxing ability. He definitely throws with some power at times, but the same thing for Sergey. He throws with power at times too, but he doesn't necessarily light you up. So for boxing wise, again, equal. And for Grant, Grappling, it's non-existent, not even a factor. Who has more heart in this fight? 
another question mark. I can't tell you who's got more heart. I can tell you Dwight Grant doesn't mix it up. It's not a very good quality if you're talking about who has passion and heart, who wants to go in their fight. I can also tell you that Sergey has been out of the octagon for three damn years. There's a lot of question marks in this fight. I don't like passing on a fight altogether, but if you're going to pass on a fight in this card, this might be one to pass on. I favor Sergey Kondosko to win the fight, and that's more because of my issues with Dwight Grant, not because I like Sergey so much. Then the fight goes a distance, that's a prop to consider. I think two more props to consider is the fight going to decision for either fighter, and the fight starting round two. I like the round props. And so if the fight starts round two is around, I don't know, minus 250, minus 300, could be a parlay piece. I don't see the guy here pressuring the pace enough in round one to end the fight in round one. As for gyms, it should be noted, Sergey's training at some of the top gyms in the world, but he's bounced around, and Dwight Grant as well. He's based out of AKA in California, but he's also done some training at some other gyms that are notable. Going to be a close one, guys. Don't put too much money behind this. You're going to be frustrated. That's the breakdown, though. Thank you guys for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe, and take advantage of our free video library below. We'll see you guys on the flip side. Deuces. Next fight in the card should be the main event for the prelims, but you know what? They shuffle things around a lot, so hopefully it stays the same. Catchweight battle at 190 pounds between Mark andre Barriut, who goes by the Power Bar, and Jordan Wright, who goes by the Beverly Hills Ninja. The Beverly Hills Ninja is 12-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here, plus 140 in money line. He hails from Los Angeles, California, hence the Beverly Hills Ninja. 30 years old, 6'2 in height with a 77-inch reach. He's out of Dynamics MMA, has also done some training at Jackson Wink MMA. As for Mr. Baryut, who goes by the Power Bar, he's 13-5 overall, 2-2-1 two, two in his last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 160 in the main line. He hails from Quebec City, Quebec, 32 years old, 6 foot 1 in height with a 73-inch reach. His primary gym is Patnu Kung Fu in Quebec City. He also does some training out of Nova Gym. Look at the numbers on Tapology. Wright's the favorite according to the public votes. Even though he's not the favorite in the money line, 61% of the votes here coming on Tapology are for Wright and 39% for Baryut. I do agree with the public. I think Jordan Wright had a bad loss in his last fight against a tough opponent in Silva, a little recency bias, but I believe he gets back on track here with a win and i think he gets a knockout win looking at the striking numbers in these two fighters for jordan wright landing 8.09 per minute great output but he's also absorbing 8.29 not great that he's absorbing that many shots so his ratio is negative in terms of his striking as for mark Baryut, landing 5.81 per minute a little less volume but at least he's absorbing 5.06 less than when he's receiving not much less so his ratio is still positive but barely positive so if you look at just striking output jordan wright throws more but his stand-up defense not so good and when you watch him fight against guys like silva and pick his last two fights he leaves himself wide open for shots especially when he thinks he has a guy hurt that's when he's at his most vulnerable to get encountered we'll talk more about this when we break down his profile for takedown offense zero takedowns so far in the ufc for jordan wright it makes sense he has a karate background muay thai background he looks to fight in defeat exclusively as for mark Baryut, looks like he could probably wrestle but his numbers say otherwise 0.35 takedowns for 15 minutes so not much of a wrestler either for takedown defense jordan wright has 100 percent takedown defense if you watch the fight against pickett he defends the takedowns very well for a guy who doesn't do much wrestling or grappling has good takedown defense as for mark Baryut, not so bad either 70 percent but again i don't believe that takedown is going to be part of this fight. Let's talk about the background of Mr. Jordan Wright. He was born in San Antonio, Texas. He started gymnastics at four years old. He grew up a very privileged child. His parents were both very successful. His mom was a lawyer. His dad was a businessman. After watching Dragon Ball Z on television, he developed an interest into mixed martial arts. He began karate and Muay Thai at a very young age. He competed in his first Muay Thai tournament as a young teenager. He moved to New Mexico to try out for Jackson Week MMA while also attending the University of New Mexico. And prior to the start of his freshman year in college, he actually lived and trained at Jackson Week MMA. Shortly after college, he made his pro debut at 23 years old in 2014. He has a brown belt in karate. He won his first 12 pro fights, all by a finish, and his UFC debut. His last two opponents, he fought Bruno Silva last year, first round KO loss. It's important to watch that fight. He comes in as a plus 270 underdog, so he is an underdog. On paper, it looks like, okay, he lost, round one got knocked out. Watch the fight. He did a great job initially. He's backing up Silva, landing some good punches. Silva's a warrior. He could take a punch. But Silva was definitely cracked, a little wobbly. He gets Silva in the clinch, lands some nice knees. It's all going his way. And then as he disengages from the clinch against the cage, Silva cracks him with a really hard overhand right, clearly wobbles him. 
He falls down. He tries to recover. He can't fully recover. He's trying to spin, grab legs, whatever he can do. The ref steps in. It wasn't an early stoppage, but I'll give it to the Beverly Hills Ninja. He was fighting to get position and do something. He wasn't just giving up, but that's the price you pay when you get sloppy. It's the one big criticism I have for Jordan Wright. When he gets a guy a little bit hurt, when he backs someone up, he leaves his head wide open. Things are coming, swinging from the hip, legs, whatever. He's off balance. If he fights someone like the caliber of Silver, where he has him hurt, but they're still kind of there, he risks getting finished at some point himself. Against Jamie Pickett, 2021, last year as well. First round KO win. He starts off that fight very similar to the Silver fight. He's got Pickett against the fence. He's knocking him around, landing the better shots. Comes in as a minus 110 pick him, and looks like a minus 400 favorite coming into that first round. He gets Pickett hurt, lands some nice knees in the clinch. Pickett's backing up, kind of running away. And here's where you see Jordan Wright. If you slow down the film, watch it. He's completely out of control. He's swinging from everywhere. He's completely off balance. Almost falls down one time when he's trying to throw something. He ends up clinching up Pickett again, gets his hands behind the head like a Muay Thai clinch, lands a solid knee, Pickett drops to the ground, he gets on top of him, ground and pound finish. You like that to finish, but here's where you have to watch those fights because the reality is for a fighter like him at 30 years old, he needs to mature a little bit, shore up his fighter IQ. He's got good finishing ability and power in his hands and his feet, no doubt about it. He's got to calm down a little bit. I'd like to see him win a fight late round three or even go to decision. Not that I want to see my fighters that I'm betting on going to decision, but the point is if he's going to become the best version of himself, he's got to calm down a little bit. He can't get too overexcited. So those two fights, Bruno Silva, Jimmy Pickett, it's like a tale of two different fights. One fight, he gets to finish, he gets to win. Other fight, he gets finished himself. The things I like about Jordan Pickett, I mentioned the finishing rate. He has a 100% finish rate. All 12 of his MMA wins are by finish. Now on the same side, his two losses, he got finished. He has excellent power in his hands and his feet. He has a very unique karate stance, which can make him elusive at times and hard to figure out. Problem with that stance is, like Steven Thompson, these guys, their hands are low. Hence, that's why he's also absorbing 8.29 strike per minute. Needs to get his defense a little better. I'm not sure he has to bring his hands up. That would be opposite of his style, but has to avoid from taking so many punches. You can't be taking 8.29 hits per minute and have a long career in mixed martial arts. It's not a recipe for success. Now, my concerns for Jordan Wright. Durability might be an issue. Not sure just yet, but his two losses, he got KO'd and he got KO'd early. He definitely needs more experience. And at 30 years old, it's kind of now or never, right? He's approaching his prime years and he needs to fight some better opponents and see what he's made of. I'd like to see him go through a grueling fight, make good decisions, recover, not blow his wild when he has someone hurt, manage his cardio and finish a fight in the scorecards and show that he's matured a little bit. And lastly, we mentioned before, it gets a little too excited when he has someone hurt. That gets him into trouble, leaves himself wide open for a counter. And in the case of the silver fight, it costs him the fight. As for the Canadian, Marc-Andre Barriut, born in Quebec, Canada. He has two degrees in culinary. He actually moved to Florida in 2021, just last year, to work as a cook when he's not fighting. He had a 4-3 amateur career, but in his amateur career, seven total fights only had one finish. He's the former TKO middleweight and lightweight champion. He signed the UFC 2019. He has a 2-4-1 UFC record, so well under 500 in the UFC. His most notable opponent, he fought Ninja Kwani, 2021, round one, 16-second loss. Not his best moment. Came in as a pick at minus 105 on the money line. He simply just gets caught early, doesn't recover. It's more of a flash knockout. It's not an indictment on Mark Barrio. I'm not saying he doesn't have a chin, but in that fight, he just catches a bad punch, doesn't recover. It's an overhand right, kind of catches him in the temple area. And that punch, if you land that punch the right way, it could just completely knock somebody out. His prior fight, he went up against Dalcha Lingambula, 2021 decision win. He came in as a minus 165 favorite. The prior fight before that I want to talk about, Andrew Sanchez, 2019 decision lost. Andrew Sanchez is 3-5 and five since 2017. His only wins since 2017 against Marc-Andre Barriut, who's 2-4-1 in the UFC. He beat Marcus Perez, who was 0-3 in the UFC before getting cut. And then he beat Wellington Terman, who's 3-3 three and three in the UFC. Put that in perspective. Andrew Sanchez, since 2017, his only three wins, and he's 3-5 since 2017, under 500, have been against guys that are under 500 or at 500 in the UFC. So not the best quality competition, but yet he loses that fight. The things I like about Marc-Andre Barriut. 
He has fought decent competition. Not championship level guys, but still decent competition. He had an impressive ground and pound win over Abu Azatiar last year. Again, put that in just a vacuum. It's just one fight, but looked pretty good. And for what it's worth, Mark Baryu looks pretty durable. He comes out there in good shape. He's obviously working his ass off. He's a tough guy overall. Doesn't come off as a weak guy or someone who's coming in there scared, doesn't want to win the fight. He's a pretty aggressive overall guy. The problem it seems to be is he's coming up short against better fighters. And last but not least for him, his cardio seems to check out. He can go the distance. He has got good cardio. He's active. Leg kicks, body kicks, punches. Has decent volume. Again, landing 5.81 strike per minute, so he's got pretty good volume. Low finish rate. He has one finish in his last seven fights in the UFC. He had a bunch of finishes in his regional scene fights before he came to the UFC, like a lot of fighters, but when he came to the UFC, it didn't transition over. So again, one finish in his last seven UFC fights. He's 2-4-1 in the UFC. That's a 40% winning percentage. He has two wins in the last four years. Very limited wrestling game, as the numbers show. 0.35 takedowns per 15 minutes. He absorbs just over five strikes per minute and barely has a positive striking ratio with 5.8 landed himself. And absorbing that many strikes per minute, again, is a recipe for disaster. And that goes for both fighters. Wright's absorbing even more, but the bottom line is that Barry's also absorbing his share as well. He holds his hands very low at times. He has a boxer stance, but the reason why Chidi Ninja knocks him out so easily in round one is because his hands are down here he's got his guard up but his guard's here instead of being up here and so ninja kwani closes the distance one heavy overhand right it goes way over his hand because his hands down here he gets knocked down at least at the end of the fight so he's got to shore up his stand-up defense both guys do i don't want to jump on Barriot here when jordan Wright also has some stand-up defense problem the fights we watched every down this film we watched Barriot versus ninja kwani from 2021 Barriot versus lingo bulu 2021 right versus silver 2021 and right versus picket 2021 i apologize for continuing to mispronounce dacha lingo bulu's last name just doesn't roll off the tongue <laughs> In any case, the last few notes I have these two fighters are side-by-side comparisons. I see these guys as being equal experience-wise and fighter IQ-wise. For cardio, again, equal. Can't really give one guy the edge. For finishing ability, definitely give the edge to Jordan Wright. We talked about it. Mark andre Barriut, what, one finish in his last seven UFC fights. You got Jordan Wright with a finish in every single one of his wins. As for boxing, I give an edge there to Jordan Wright as well. I think Mark andre Barriut just strikes a little bit slower. He's got decent stand-up defense, not great, but he's going to have a hard time kicking up with the pace and pressure of Jordan Wright. The best version of Jordan Wright comes out there pretty fast, a lot of pace, a lot of pressure. I think Mark Barrio has a hard time keeping up with that early in the fight. Now, if it goes to round two, round three, gets a little bit ugly, that's where the side of the fight starts to lean towards Barrio. But early in the fight, I think that pace and the pressure, the output of Jordan Wright with 8.09 strike per minute, that's going to be a lot for Mark andre Barrio to deal with. So with boxing advantage, I give that to Jordan Wright. For grappling, neither guy grapples, so we can just move on. Who has more heart? You know, both guys are in that point in their career, 30-32, where it matters. It's now or never. They both won it. They're both very motivated. In the case of Jordan Wright, we mentioned he grew up in a privileged background, but he wanted to fight. He wanted to be a fighter. He could have been a lot of other things, got into business, got into law school, you know, followed in his parents' footsteps. The bottom line is he wanted to fight. He's a gritty guy. As for Mark andre Barriut, it's just written all over his face. The guy is gritty. So I'm giving these guys both the same rating in terms of heart. They both want it. The props to consider here. Fight not with the distance. That number is not out, but I would take that number into consideration. Then this fight does not go the full three rounds. Either Jordan Wright does what he does and knocks out Mark Andre Barriut, or he gets in trouble, makes a mistake, and gets knocked out himself. The second prop to look at is Jordan Wright by KO. We like Jordan Wright to win the fight. A little surprised at the plus 140, plus 150 ish money line on him, but I'll take it all day, every day. I'm also not surprised if by fight time this moves to almost a pick him. I like Jordan Wright a lot. It's not a dogger pass. I like a trip to win the fight. That's the breakdown, guys. Let me know what you think. Are we off base here? Are we underrated Marc-Andre Barriut? Is he the guy that we should be on? We like Jordan Wright a lot. Give us some feedback. Correct us if we're off. Drop the knowledge on us. Let us know if we're off on this. Anyway, thanks for joining us, guys. Please like and subscribe if you haven't done so already. And take advantage of our free video library, which is down below in the description if you're watching this on YouTube. All right, guys. Next up, we've got a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between the American fighter Lando Venata, who goes by Groovy, 
and Charles Air Jordan from Canada. Jordan is 12-4-1 overall, 2-2-1 in his last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 140 in the money line. He hails out of Quebec, Canada, 26 years old, 5'9 in height with a 69-inch reach. He's out of Academia Pro Star MMA. As for Groovy Venata, he's 12-5-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here at plus 120 in the money line. He's based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, 30 years old, 5'9 in height with a 71-inch reach. He's out of Jackson's MMA Acuna. I'm not sure if that's related to Jackson Wink's MMA because he did train at Jackson Wink MMA before. So as for height and reach, these guys are very similar. A 2-inch reach advantage there for Venata and the same height on both fighters. Looking at the numbers here on Tapology, Mr. Air Jourdain is the favorite, getting 69% of the votes compared to 31% of the votes coming in for Venata. I do agree. I think it's a close fight. These guys are very evenly matched. I think Venata is one of those fighters where he's not great at any one thing, but he's good overall. So he's a tough opponent, not easy to finish. As we break down this fight here, we'll try to convince you that Charles Air Jourdain is the right pick. Let's take a glance at the striking numbers in these two fighters. For Charles Jourdain, averaging 5.7 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.57. So a positive ratio, but still absorbing quite a bit of punches and strikes. As for Lando Venata, same kind of thing, averaging 4.6 seven per minute, absorbing 4.77. So both guys are hovering around equal output versus input with Charles Jourdain averaging a little more output. As for takedown offense, Charles has no takedowns yet in the UFC, so he's not much of a wrestler or a grappler. For Lando Venata, averaging 1.12 per 15 minutes. Neither guy is much of a wrestler, but I would give the edge there to Lando Venata. As for takedown defense, once again, very similar. About 50% for Charles Jourdain and about 68% here for Venata. So wrestling department, grappling department, these guys are fairly equal. You imagine this fight probably plays out on the feet. Looking at the profile on Charles Jourdain, he was born in Montreal, Canada. He has a younger brother named Louis Jourdain, who's also a mixed martial arts fighter. He went 8 2 as an amateur. He went pro 2016. He's the former TKO major featherweight champion. He lost his UFC debut to Des Green in 2019 via decision. He earned fight of the night in his second UFC fight against Du Hu Choi, his most notable opponent. He fought Andre Ewell last year, 2021, won that fight by decision. He came in as a minus 220 favorite. First time winning by decision. He learned a lot with the distance, showed good cardio, but man, he busted up Andre Ewell. If that fight went another 45, 60 seconds, he probably wins the fight by a TKO. Did a good job, showed a lot of fury and anger. He was like yelling at you all at the end of the fight, blood dripping down his face. He looked like an animal. His prior fight, Julian Arosa, 2021 submission loss. Now, that was a tough one. He came in as a minus 200 favorite in that fight. He ends up losing the fight against a veteran, gets caught up in the wrong position. His submission defense isn't great. We'll talk more about that as we break down his profile. A prior fight before that, Andre Feely, a name we recognize. He came in as a plus 185 underdog, loses the fight by split decision. Pretty good job. One judge thought he won the fight. It was an even fight overall, loses the fight, but goes a distance again, shows good cardio. And one more fight to discuss. Du Choi, 2019, round two TKO win. He came in as a plus 300 underdog. If you had him in that fight, you were pretty happy after cashing that ticket. Bottom line is, he's not getting beaten badly. He's not getting beat up or TKO'd. Yes, the mission loss against Arosa. He's fought some decent quality opponents, and he's held his own. Some things I like about Jordan. He's got an excellent finish rate, 92% to be exact. He's got 11 finishes in his 12 wins. His only decision win was his last fight against Andre Ewell. And again, that fight went a little bit longer. He probably finishes Ewell as well. He's also very durable with a good chin. He's never been knocked out or TKO'd. He had one loss by finish, and that was by submission against Julian Rosa. He doesn't shy away from mixing it up and making the good old-fashioned street fight. He's the kind of fighter where once he gets hit one time really hard, it sort of wakes him up. So he doesn't back away from a fight. These guys are both tough guys. We might even see a TKO finish at some point. These guys do not back down. They're like battering rams. We mentioned before as well, he's fought some pretty good competition in the UFC thus far. He's also been very active. He fought three times last year, twice in 2020, and three times in 2019. That's eight fights in three years. That's high activity. The guy's young. He wants to get in there. He's obviously looking for fights. And as you watch him fight, you sort of notice that. He has a personality of a fighter. He's the kind of fighter where fans enjoy betting on him. Whether he wins or loses, he's going to bring the fight to his opponent. He's not looking for the scorecards or some judges to save him. He's coming out there looking for blood. Doesn't matter if he gets hit himself. Now, my concern for Jordan, his submission defense is a little bit suspect. Now, not a big issue just yet, but one of his four pro losses was by submission. And one of his two amateur losses was also by submission. He doesn't have much wrestling as we talked about before. Zero takedowns. So far in the UFC. Imagining that if he fights a guy with good wrestling and grappling, that's probably going to be his Achilles heel. 
In this matchup, though, Venata has only one submission win in the last eight years. It shouldn't be a factor in this fight, but it should be acknowledged that he doesn't have the best submission defense, and if he fights a guy who's a good grappler or submission artist, that could be a problem for him. Now, the same way that I like the way he gets into the phone booth with his opponent and fights, does back down from a brawl, that can also be a problem. You get into too many punches, you start exchanging, get a little bit wild, you can get clipped. Anyone can clip. From that standpoint, I'd like to see him shore up his fighter IQ. Don't sit in the phone booth with a guy, start exchanging. Unless he's hurt, you leave yourself open to get hit. He's the kind of guy, again, he's fun to bet on. The crowd likes him, but that's not the way to have a long career. So what I'm hoping for him is an improvement in fighter IQ. Be a little smarter about when you sit in your punches. Don't sit in the phone booth too long with a guy who's hurting you. And if you're hurting the other guy, that's fine. But again, don't leave yourself open to counters. As for Mr. Lando Venata, born in Neptune, New Jersey, as Landon Anthony Venata, he dropped the N in his first name. Now he's just Lando, kind of sounds a little bit cooler. He started his wrestling career at 13 years old, also started BJJ at 13 years old. He's a two-time state qualifier in wrestling. He went 43-3 his senior year at Riverside High School in Florida. After high school, he attended the University of Tennessee Chattanooga. Unfortunately, he dropped out of college after one semester, so he never actually registered a single college wrestling match. And I want to point this out because the UFC commentators like to sort of paint the brush or paint the picture one way, but don't get the details. And for example, against Mike Grundy, John Annick says, oh, he went Division I in college wrestling. He wrestled 174 pounds, yada, yada, yada. He did not wrestle Division I wrestling. He never had a single match. He dropped out of his fall semester. And if you don't know, wrestling is a second semester sport. Wrestling doesn't start up until about January. Nationals is in April. So if he drops out after September through December, he never wrestled a single match. If you watch the prior fight with Mike Grundy versus Vanetta, you'll hear John Annick say he's a Division I wrestler, 174 pounds with his weight class. He never actually wrestled in college, period. He went to college for one semester, dropped out. That's fine. But again, I want to clarify the details on that. After dropping out of college, he moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he enrolled immediately to Jackson Week MMA. He went 2-0 as an amateur. He made his pro debut in 2012. He has earned fight of the night four times in UFC. He has a brown belt in BJJ. His nickname is Groovy, which was actually adopted or created by a fellow UFC fighter named Cub Swanson while they were eating at an IHOP. That's from John Anik. So again, maybe that's not the accurate story, but I heard that in one of his fights. Some of his prior opponents, Mike Grundy, 2021 split decision win. He came in as a plus 100 underdog. That was one of the worst judge fights in all of mixed martial arts history. We'll break it down for you and I'll try to explain it to you. But that's one of those fights where I kind of forgot about how bad the scorecards were. So for example, Patrick Patlin, one judge has a 30-27 for Grundy. So that judge thinks he won all three rounds. The next judge, Marcos Rosales. He had a 30-27 for Venata. So here we go. Two people watching the same damn fight. One guy has every round for one guy. One guy has every, every round for the other guy. The last judge, Chris Lee. It ends up being in his hands, right? Because one judge has it one way, one judge has it another way. So it's now in his hands to decide who wins the fight. He gets it 29-28 to for Venata. Not the worst scorecard in the world, but there's a but here. There's a part of this scorecard which makes no fucking sense. You watch round one of this fight. Don't watch the whole fight. Just watch round one. The link is down below in the description if you want to watch that. It's part of our free video library. You watch round one and with a straight face, tell me or anyone else that Mike Grundy doesn't win round one. He clearly wins round one. Now the commentators babbling about Venata this and babbling about Venata that and Venata doing this so well, the fight was 100% equal on the feet. It was equal on the feet. Grundy landed a few punches. Venata did a few good things. Grundy's not an amazing boxer, but he's durable. You know, he's game, right? At one point, John Attic says, oh, well, Grundy's only got two takedowns and nine attempts. And I'm like, well, that's two more fucking takedowns than Venata, who has no takedowns in round one. And if you're counting the position control against the fence, when Grundy has Venata against the fence, I don't know how that's judged. I think that's position control against the fence. So he has position control. He has two takedowns. I don't care if it was 99 attempts. He has two takedowns. And one could argue he maybe had a third takedown. But the point is, Annex telling us two takedowns, only nine attempts. That first round one, you know, Minata's doing so well. He's defending the takedowns. And they talk about, like, look how good he's defending the takedowns. My gosh, it's amazing. The seven takedowns he defended. 
yeah, good job, but you got taken down twice. So after round one, I don't understand how any judge, Marcos Rosales and Chris Lee, how can you give round one to Venata? He lost that round. And if you're judging that objectively, he loses round one. And so in that case, he loses the fight. The one judge who had 30-27 for Venata, I don't know who paid him. That, that's a crazy scorecard. doesn't make any sense. We can argue about round two and three, and it was close or whatever else back and forth. But this scorecard with one judge having it one way three rounds, one judge having another way three rounds, and then one, one judge having the first round completely wrong and deciding the fight, it's just bullshit. It's bullshit. These scorecards are annoying. This becomes more and more part of the equation. And if you're going to the scorecards in any fight, if the fighter's not going to finish the fight, you got to factor in how will the judges score it? How much have they been fucking paid? What's their liking? How loudly do they hear DC and the other commentators screaming about, oh, this guy's doing a good job? Because here's the thing. When a commentator likes a fighter, they say things like this. Wow, you know, he only got taken down two times in nine attempts, you know? He landed the better shots. He didn't land as much, but he landed the better shots in that fight. And that happens in the fight against Bobby Green. Bobby Green and Venata, there's a round there in their second fight where both guys sort of knock each other down. Their first knockdown is Venata knocking down Bobby Green. And they're like, oh, oh my gosh, look at that. He knocked him down. It's amazing. The second knockdown, when Bobby Green knocks down Venata, right away they remind the audience they both had knockdowns in this fight. These commentators are very biased. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what the issue is. I don't know what the motivation is. But the bottom line is they tend to choose a favorite. And at that point, they just jump on that person's side. They defend them. They say this again like, oh, he defended seven of the nine takedowns. <laughs> Dude, once again, he got fucking taken down twice. That's an easy round to call. He wins that round. But again, the commentators who are speaking loudly, the judges are right there nearby. They're on the same page. And for some reason, they just steal rounds from people. Did Miranda Maverick really lose that fight against Macy Barber? Does anyone really believe that? Hell no. But again, you got the ringside guys who are like, oh, Macy Barber this, Macy Barber that. Bullshit. They're robbing people of fights. The fighter you're betting on is going to decision to win. Be very careful betting that fighter with any kind of confidence. A fight before this, Bobby Green, 2020, lost the fight by decision as a minus 155 favorite. Another fight, Yancey Medeiros, 2020, decision win as a minus 125 favorite. Mark Diakisi, 2019, decision win as a plus 140 underdog. There's a theme in his fight. He tends to be right around the pick'em. A slight favorite, a slight dog against your car close. Minus 190 favorite, loses that fight by decision. Against Bobby Green, the first time, minus 180 favorite goes to draw. That's very interesting to me. So he fought Bobby Green twice. Both times he's a favorite, first time a draw, second time he loses. I wonder why that is. I would argue now that Bobby Green is clearly the better fighter than Minata. And last but not least, Tony Ferguson, his UFC debut, 2016, round two, submission loss. Now that fight he came in as a plus 45 underdog. It makes sense, Tony Ferguson, a legend of the sport. I don't blame Venata for losing that fight that way. It makes perfect sense. And that also goes to the strength of schedule. So for example, he's fought Tony Ferguson, John McDessie, Bobby Green twice, Dracar Close, Matt Frivola, Mark Diakisi. The bottom line is he has a very good strength of schedule. He's extremely durable and a very good chin. He's only been finished one time in his mixed martial arts career that was by submission against Tony Ferguson and never been knocked out. My concerns for Venata, he lacks finishing ability himself. Seven of his last eight fights have gone to decision. Now he did have some finishes before joining the UFC. He had five finishes in his seven matches before the UFC. Now since joining the UFC, he has one finish in 11 fights. Clearly the step up in competition has made it a little bit harder for him to get finishes. He lacks power in his hands. If you include his fights before the UFC, his amateur career, his entire pro career, he has one TKO finish, and that was via a grounded pound against a guy named Chad Curry. Chad Curry is no longer a fighter. He retired in 2017 with a 9-2 overall career in the LFA, never fought in Bellator or UFC. His takedown defense at 68% is not great, but I will give it to him. He gets up quickly. In this fight, it shouldn't be a factor. Charles Jourdain is a stand-up fighter. He could have a little more activity. He fought once last year, twice in 2020, and twice in 2019. You'd like to see him fighting at least twice a year at this point in his career, 30 years old, approaching his prime years. 
The fights we watched have been on this film. We watched Venata vs. Gundy, 2021. Venata vs. Green, 2020. Jordan vs. Ewell, 2021. And Jordan vs. Arosa, 2021. The last few notes I have in these two fighters. For experience and IQ, about equal. They both fought about the same amount of fights. Similar level of competition. For fighter IQ, both guys know what they're good at. They're not dumb fighters. They're very durable. They're not easy to finish. As for cardio, once again, I've seen guys both go the distance. They look fresh in the last round. They want to fight. They're tough. For finishing ability, I give the edge to Charles Jordan as we talked about. For boxing... I also give the edge to Charles Jordan. I think Lando Venata is the kind of fighter. He's not bad at anything. He's also not great at any one thing. As for striking, I just think that Jordan's a little sharper, a little quicker, and hits a little bit harder. Now for grappling, I give the edge to Lando Venata, and here's the reason why. Against Grundy, for example, he gets taken down pretty easily, 68% takedown defense, but he gets back up. Charles Jordan, if he gets taken down, not as good of technique to get back up. Now, should it matter this fight? I don't think so, but I'm giving the grappling edge to Lando Venata. As for the heart, who has more passion, who wants it more, you can't convince me either guy here is a chump or doesn't want it or is going to tap out easy. They're both tough fighters. I imagine this fight goes the full distance. Some blood involved, some violence. If someone's going to finish the fight, I imagine that's Charles Jordan. But good luck. Lando Venata is a tough ass SOB. The three props I like for this fight, I like the fight going the distance. And I like both fighters by decision. The one you like the most, take them by decision. The money line's not so bad. It's a pick-em. Minus 130 for Jordan, plus 110 for Venata. But if you want to get a little more bang for your buck, take one of the two fighters you like more by decision. I think this fight goes the full distance. That's the breakdown, guys. Thank you for joining us. Who do you think is going to win the fight? Let us know what you think. Do you think we are off in this fight? Do you think Jordan's not the favorite? Should it be Venata? Will the 30-year-old have a little bit more of a senior advantage here over the 26-year-old Canadian? Again, we like Jordan to win the fight. Should be pretty close. I can't argue with either side of this fight. These guys are both good fighters, both very tough, but we're taking Charles Jordan away. Okay, the lone heavyweight bout in the main card, Alexander Romanoff versus Chase Sherman. There's a last-minute change. Initially, it was supposed to be Alexander Romanoff versus Tanner Bozer. Chase Sherman comes in last minute, like five minutes ago, to come in and fill the spot of Tanner Bozer. Here's the thing, though. Chase Sherman had just been cut by the UFC. He was not a good prospect. It wasn't working out. He had a host of issues. I mean, it was a litany of things with this guy. Does not belong in the UFC as a heavyweight. That's why they just cut him. Now they bring him in here to feed him to Alexander Romanoff. Now, this fight line was already at like a minus 500, minus 600 when it was Tanner Bozer. Now it's somewhere over minus 800, almost minus 1,000 in some spots. Here's the thing. Find a prop that makes sense here. That's going to be round one TKO submission or some kind of finish by Alexander Romanoff or round two. The fight not going the distance. I'm going to definitely parlay the fight doesn't go the distance. If that's anywhere under minus 500, I'm parlaying that. I'm a degenerate. I want some action in the fight. But there's no way it goes the distance, and here's why. Romanoff has never been the distance. I heard some cappers last week talking about him and Tanner Bozo go the distance. That's not possible. Alexander Romanov is not built for the distance. He was on his way to losing the fight against Juan Espino, who's like 40 years old in that fight because he was wearing down. He was exhausted towards the end of round two. He's lucky he faked a nut shot at some point, gets a victory by some quirky rule thing, whatever. The bottom line is Alexander Romanov is built for two rounds. It doesn't go over two rounds. Chase Sherman, he's not built for this lifestyle. He's not an MMA fighter. He just simply doesn't have what it takes. He's a former Division II college offensive lineman. Having been around some college football players during my time and having coached a little bit of offensive line as a junior college coach, it disturbs me. <laughs> Most offensive linemen are pretty tough guys. They're pretty durable. They're low maintenance. This guy goes to the corner, starts like talking back to his coaches has a moment, starts doubting himself. Even when he's not really hurt, he just goes to this like mental psyching himself out. So I'm not a big fan of Chase Sherman. This is going to be a cakewalk for Alexander Romanov. Now, here's the one caveat. If you want to take a stab on Chase Sherman, live bet him. If the fight starts to go into like round two, late round two, that's not territory for Romanov. Not at all. If it goes into round three, I've seen Chase Sherman have decent cardio. He doesn't have bad cardio. Again, a former college football player, did plenty of running, did his sprints. I imagine if it goes to round three, now anything is possible. Now, could Chase Sherman knock him out? I don't think so. 
Can Chase Sherman somehow take it to round three and still fuck up something and lose the fight that way? Yeah. When Alexander Romanov takes down Sherman, he's not going to let him back up. It's too bad it couldn't have been Tanner Bozier. I think it would be a better fight. But the reality is the UFC likes Romanov. He's undefeated. 15-0 prospect. This is going to be easy pickings for him. There's some film links down below as part of our video description to see his past fights. Not going to be that impressed with anything. Kind of looks overweight at times. Actually came into his last fight about 257, under 265, about 7 or 8 pounds. So came in lighter, which looks better on him. That Espino fight, again, that was scary. It's my opinion, he kind of lost that fight. But again, he got away with some crotch hit, and he just, you know, kind of milked it and faked it. Literally couldn't stand up, couldn't continue. They do wear cups, you know. <laughs> Dare to take Alexander Romanoff into your parlay. I wouldn't do it. Like the Dean Barry fight, the prelim card. I would not do it. There's not a lot of value in these minus 1,000, minus 800 spots. You're better off. Find a prop you like. Stick with it. Live or die by it. The fight knocked the distance. That should be around minus 400-ish, minus 500. That's the spot you probably want to take. All right, guys, let's move on. Up next, we have a flyweight battle at 125 pounds between Majari Suj and Manel Kopp. Manel Kopp goes by Starboy. He's 17-6 and six overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Currently a slight favorite here at minus 165 on the money line. He hails from Portugal via Angola. He's 28 years old, 5'5 five five in height with 68-inch reach. He's out of VS team. As for Sue, he goes by the Tibetan Eagle. He's 15-4 and four overall, 3-2 and two in his last five fights. A slight dog here at plus 150 on the money line. He hails from China, 26 years old, 5'8 in height with 72-inch reach. He's out of Enbo Fight Club. The Tibetan Eagle will have about a 4-inch reach advantage and about a 3-inch height advantage in this matchup. As for the vote in tapology cop is the favorite getting 83 percent of the votes here only 17 percent coming in for sue i do agree i like cop to win the fight a little surprised that the money line is so much closer than the public votes because i do agree with the public i think cop wins this fight four or five times out of five i just don't believe in sue at this point he's a pretty good fighter just hasn't fought the quality competition that manal cop has Let's take a glance at the striking numbers in these two guys. Sue's landing 4.49 per minute, absorbing 2.19. Nice positive ratio. As for Cop, landing about 4.69 per minute, about the same output as Sue, but absorbing 4.59. So stand-up defense, striking defense is not checking out as good as Sue. As for takedown offense, neither guy is much of a takedown artist. For Sue, averaging 0.40 takedowns per 15 minutes, and for Manel Cop, 0.77 per 15 minutes. As for takedown defense, both guys are very similar. 77% for Sue and 80% for Cop. I believe this fight is going to be on the feet the entire time. Manel Cop did an interview recently where he said he's going to have his wrestling shoes on, look to grapple. I don't see that happening. His numbers don't support that. And in prior fights where he had a chance to wrestle, like against Nikolaou, he didn't do it. He's more of a striker. His background isn't striking and kickboxing. So I imagine this fight stays on the feet the entire three rounds. Let's look at the background of these two fighters. Sue, he was born in China next to the Tibetan border. So he's actually of Chinese nationality, but he's of Tibetan descent. He's the first UFC fighter from Tibet. He grew up herding cattle as a young boy in the mountains of Tibet. I can imagine the scenery there, like herding cattle on the mountains, on the edges of these cliffs and beautiful sunrise and sunsets. Uh, just a whole other world out there, put it that way. He joined Enbo Fight Club when he was 14 years old. Years old. That was his introduction into mixed martial arts. He won second place at a Chinese youth Sanda tournament in 2010. He transitioned to MMA in 2015. He began his official MMA fighting career in 2016 by fighting in the Wu Lin Fang promotion, which goes by WLF. He had a record of 11 and 3 in that promotion. He's trained at Embo Fight Club for most of his life, but he's also done some training at Team Alpha Male and American Top Team. He fought in WLF prior to signing with the UFC and actually lost his last fight in that promotion before coming to the UFC. Kind of interesting. You don't normally see people lose their last fight in lower level promotions before coming to the UFC. He lost his UFC debut in 2018 versus Luis Smoka via round two armbar. He's currently three into the UFC with both losses by submission. Two of his most recent opponents in the UFC, Zaruk Adashev, 2021 decision win. He came in as a minus 140 favorite. Adashev, though, is one in two in the UFC with his only win over Ryan Benoit. And Ryan Benoit's on a four-fight losing streak. He's lost six of his eight last fights. So Adashev, put it this way, average opponent. It's a nice way of putting it. His prior fight, Malcolm Gordon, 2020, KO win in round one. I can't explain this fight other than the fact that I would tell you to watch it. It only lasts for a few seconds. He tags Malcolm Gordon with some pretty straight punches, nothing that's too aggressive looking or too hard. And Malcolm Gordon just goes down, actually falls down flat in his face, balled up and the fight's over. 
Sue came into that fight as a minus three sixty five favorite. Gordon doesn't have a chin. It's pretty obvious. And in that fight again, you have to chalk it up as okay opponent, not very good competition. The things I like about Sue, he's a southpaw stance. That's always an adjustment for most fighters. Now in this fight here against Manel Cop, it won't be that big of an advantage because Manel Cop fights in a southpaw stance too and actually switch stances from time to time. He has a snappy jab. His jab is nice. It's long. He's got a reach advantage in this fight. He could use that to set things up. He throws in combinations. He does have pretty good boxing for a Chinese fighter or Tibetan fighter. You're thinking more of like a wrestler. Maybe the boxing's a little bit rough. His boxing is actually his best attribute. He has a decent kicking game as well. A variety of kicks, question mark kicks, body kicks, front kicks, leg kicks. He's got very good footwork and solid cardio, and he's got a very good chin. He's never been KO'd in his entire career. Some things that concern me about Sue, his submission defense is a little bit worrisome. Both of his UFC losses were by submission, and all four of his pro losses were by submission. His finishing ability was good before he joined the UFC, which is common for fighters who join the UFC that come from low-level promotions. For example, he was 12-2 before starting the UFC, all 12 wins by TKO or submission. Now, since joining the UFC, he's got one finish in five total fights. So his finishing ability has definitely tapered off. Both of his UFC wins were against fighters that have about a 500 level fighting record in the UFC or lower. So again, very low level competition. He doesn't use any grappling or wrestling as part of his approach. He has some submissions back in the day, but he only averages 0 0.40 takedowns per 15 minutes. Again, a half a takedown per fight. I can't imagine this fight goes to the ground. He holds his hands very low. He's got a karate type of stance. Imagine like Steven Thompson. The problem with that is his hands are never up on his guard. When he starts throwing, the hands get even lower. That's a recipe for disaster with a big time striker like Benel Kopp, who's a guy who strikes pretty hard and can knock someone out. And last but not least, he's not very active. He fought once last year, once 2020, and once 2019. So averaging one fight per year. At 26 years old, that's not going to cut it. So I'd like to see him be a little busier. Now, as for Manal Kopp, he was born in Angola, Africa, which is on the southwest coast of Africa. His birth name was Manuel Pedro Gomez, a very typical Spanish name. Nonetheless, he goes by Manal Kopp now. His ancestry is from Angola, Africa, obviously, but he's also got citizenship in Portugal. He went pro in 2012. He fought nine bouts in Ryzen before starting the UFC. He's the former Ryzen Bantamweight champion. He signed to the UFC 2021. He lost his first two UFC fights via decision. He's currently the number 14 ranked UFC flyweight. He fights out of both stances, as I mentioned before, which is a good thing. Versus Southpaw like Sue, he'll be able to adjust pretty easily. He's the first Portuguese Angolan fighter to fight in the UFC. His last three opponents, Zalga Zumagulov, 2021 round one TKO win. Impressive win. Zumagulov is a pretty tough fighter. He came in as a minus 300 favorite. Now, Zalga Zumagulov, a decent fighter, but he has lost three of his last four fights all in the UFC. So he's got a one and three record in the UFC, not quite lighting it on fire. His prior fight, Odie Osborne, 2021 round one TKO as well. A nice flying knee perfectly timed Ode was going down for a takedown you got Manel Cop flying with a knee perfect timing was a minus 200 favorite knocks him out in round one Osborne again not the best competition he's two into the UFC these are type of opponents that have less than a 500 winning percentage in the UFC one more fight to discuss Matthias Nicolau 2021 split decision loss he came in as a slight favorite to pick him at minus 120 he gets taken down very early in round one and never gets up so frustrating to watch that round one he spent the entire round on his back, shows no urgency to get back up. The rest of the fight is fairly close. I mean, it's a split decision loss, so one judge thought he won the fight, but he doesn't press the pace enough at times, gets no takedowns himself, and simply put, the game plan was not right. He should have won that fight, a fight that I believe that he probably regrets and he should have done better. Nonetheless, learning experience, he's bounced back now with two straight wins after that fight. Some things I like about Manel Cop, he fights out of both stances, as I mentioned before, so again, an adjustment here for the southpaw suit should not be a problem. He's an active fighter. He fought four times last year. He didn't fight 2020, but he had two fight cancellations, and he fought three times in 2019. Much more activity than Sue. He does a variety of strikes that include kicks and punches. He's got a very effective lower leg kick, 
but like a lot of guys, he doesn't commit to it enough. I wish he would use that more often. He's very durable. He's only been finished one time in his career out of 23 pro MMA fights. Both UFC losses were by decision, so the guy has not been finished any time recently. Very durable fighter. My concerns from an El Cop. He doesn't use wrestling or grappling enough as part of his game plan. Against Nicolau, we talked about it a second ago, he displayed very poor stand-up ability. Spent the entire round on his back. Nicolau was smaller than him. Not a great takedown artist himself. Not a great wrestler. But in that first round, he makes Nicolau look like a world champion wrestler. And last but not least, in the fight against Nicolau, I thought he just had a very poor game plan and displayed some poor fighter IQ. Now, granted, he's learning. He's only 28 years old. He's making improvements. But that fight has you wondering, like, is he a smart fighter? Does he have a sense of urgency? Does he know when he's on his back, he's got to get the hell back up? Though fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Sue vs. Adeshev, 2021, Sue vs. Gordon for 2020, Cop vs. Osborne, 2021, Cop vs. Magulov, and Cop vs. Nikolau. All three fights there for Cop were for 2021. To catch those fights, if you look down below the description here on YouTube, you'll find those five links available as part of our free video library. The last few notes have these two fighters. For Manel Cop, he's got the experience advantage and the finishing advantage. For fighter IQ, about the same. I criticize Manel Cop, his decision making in that fight against Nicolau. I think he's making improvements. These guys both check out as young fighters, 26, 28 years old, making improvements. For cardio, again, these guys both checked out. They've gone a decision. They look pretty fresh in their fights. If this fight goes around three, both fighters should be pretty fresh, should have pretty good gas tanks. As for boxing, they're similar, but different. Same, same, but different. You know what I'm saying? For example, for Sue, he's got a nice lead jab, nice snappy jab, throws in combination, but his hands are very low, so the stand-up defense is not great. For Cop, averaging 4.69 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.59, so his stand-up defense is not great either, but I believe the power advantage is on the side of Cop. He's got flying knees, better kicking game. His hands, I think, are a little bit stronger than Sue, but Sue has a nice combat. Combinations and nice jabs. So boxing-wise, there's some similarities and some differences, but these guys are about the same. For grappling, there is no grappling here. These guys don't do any grappling, they don't do any wrestling, so these guys have a low rating in the grappling department. As for Hart, who has more passion, who wants it more, I don't know. These guys are very young, 26 and 28 respectively. I haven't seen them in any wars yet. Maybe this will be a war. We'll see who wants it more. Some props to consider. The fight going the distance, you know, that's a tough one. You can make an argument for both sides. Both guys are pretty durable. They've gone the distance before recently. Then again, Manal Cop has some finishing ability. You've got Sue with some finishing ability as well. I'm going to guess here there's going to be some violence here. And I think Manel Cop finds a way to finish Sue in this fight. So the fight going under or not the distance is a prop I would look at. Two more props to consider. Manel Cop by KO and Sue by decision. That's the breakdown, guys. Should be a good fight here in the main card. If you don't agree with our assessment, maybe you have some comments you want to leave. Give us some feedback. Drop the knowledge on us. Are we reading this fight the wrong way? Should we be taking Sue more seriously? Am I overrating Manel Cop? At minus 155 on the money line, there's definitely some value there in Cop. I'll be putting him at least in two little parlays and maybe betting him straight up. No more than a half a unit. Thanks again for joining us, guys. Please like and subscribe, and we'll see you guys soon. Aren't you just gonna take that? Hope you fucking fight back. We have the first of two women's fights in the main card. It's a flyweight battle, 125 pounds, between two American fighters. Macy, the future barber, versus Montana, Monty De La Rosa. De La Rosa is 12-6-1 overall, 2-2-1 her last five fights. She's a slight dog in the money line at plus 160. She's out of Arlington, Texas, 27 years old, 5'7 in height with a 68-inch reach. She's out of Elevation Fight Team. As for the future, 9-2 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights, minus 190 in the money line. She's from Colorado, but now based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 23 years old, 11 months, about to be 24. She's 5'5 in height with a 65-inch reach. She's out of Rufus Sports Academy. As for the public votes on Tapology, Barber is the favorite, getting 77% of the votes here, only 23% coming in for De La Rosa. As for the striking numbers of these two ladies, De La Rosa is landing 2.87 per minute, absorbing 3.17, so she has a negative ratio. As for Barber, a little bit better here, landing 4.67 per minute, absorbing 3.03. So for striking, Macy Barber has an advantage in terms of volume, and also she has a positive output. As for takedown defense, Rosa has 57% takedown defense compared to 66% for Macy Barber. Looking at the background information of these two fighters, Macy Barber is from Colorado, Greeley, Colorado to be specific. If you don't know, Greeley, Colorado has been mentioned several times in the show South Park as a poor town where kids have raggedy clothing and it's very boring and it's a farm town. 
Not sure it's true, but Greeley, Colorado is a bit of a small town. She began mixed martial arts at a very young age. Her brother, Wyatt, is also an MMA fighter in Bellator. She fought in LFA prior to signing with the UFC. She signed with the UFC in 2018 after her KO win on Dana White Contender Series. She began her UFC career with three straight wins, all by TKO. Very impressive start. She's a second-degree black belt in karate, purple belt in BJJ. She has the second-most KO wins in UFC flyweight division history with two KO wins. Not a big-time number, but I guess she's second all-time. Her most notable opponents, her last fight, Miranda Maverick, 2021, split decision win. Most people will tell you, and everyone in Media Row will tell you, that Miranda Maverick won that fight. Now, she came in as a plus 145 underdog against Maverick, more or less a pick him. Miranda's 10-4 and four overall. In that fight, it's my humble opinion, I thought that she lost the fight. I thought she lost round one and two, did a good job in round three, but she did not do enough in round one and two. It's hard not to consider other factors, like was the fix in? Because clearly Maverick won the fight. Every single person in the world thought Maverick won the fight, except for two of the three judges who actually gave the fight to Macy Barber. I just have to put it out there. With the PFL nonsense that happened recently, it seemed as if that fight was fixed. No one thinks she wants to fight. Her post-fight interview, they asked her about it. She had the balls to actually sit up there and say, I thought I won the fight. There's been fighters in the past, though, who could be up there and get honest and say, listen, you know what? It was close. I wasn't sure. They asked her point blank after the fight. Did you think he won the fight? Did you think he did enough to win the fight? And she said, yeah, I think I did. I, I thought I won the fight. I did a lot in round three, whatever, my spinning back fist. She lost the fight, period. Now, if the entire world thinks she lost the fight, and everyone in media world thought she lost the fight, how in the fucking world did two judges actually give the fight to Macy Barber? You know how? That fight was fixed. Something was not right. That fight should be audited. There's no way that fight should have gone to Macy Barber. But it did. She should be on a three-fight losing streak. Her prior fight, Alexa Grasso, 2021. Decision lost. In that fight, she gets exposed. She comes in as a minus 110 pick'em. She shouldn't have been a pick'em in that fight, but the hype train's been behind her. Grosso easily outclassed her on the feet, outstruck her. Macy Barber spent more time punching the air, not even closing distance. And that's a common theme in her fights. She cannot close distance. I wonder if she wears contacts or glasses because she cannot seem to close distance against her opponents. She's so far away, throwing kicks, punches, not even close, like four or five feet away from her opponent, throwing kicks, throwing punches. They're not feints. They're actually punches and kicks. And she does that consistently against most of her opponents, especially when she gets intimidated against a person like Grasso. In round two, Grasso lands a bomb on Macy Barber. I will give Macy Barber that. She seems to be pretty durable, not easy to finish, has never been finished before, can get bloodied up and beat up, but she stays in there and she hangs in there. Against Roxanne Montefiore, just in 20 decision loss. She tears her ACL that fight again i give her credit she finishes the fight she was a minus 850 favorite the injury definitely plays a part in that nonetheless though roxanne monteferi who's 25 and 20 overall in her mixed martial arts career who recently just retired she loses to her roxanne's retired now that's a good litmus test for where we think macy barber is at 23 turning 24 she may be the future but she's definitely not the now. Her prior fight before that, Jillian Robertson, she wins the fight 2019, round one KO win. That was part of her first three fights in the UFC where she gets three KO finishes. Very impressive. She came in as a minus 135 pick'em. Keep in mind though, Jillian Robertson is 10 and seven overall, more or less a 500 level mixed martial arts fighter. Her prior fight, JJ Aldridge, another impressive win from the standpoint that she knocks her out 2019, round two TKO, and probably her best overall win. She came in as a minus 260 favorite. Aldridge is 11 and four overall. I would say that's her best overall win in her career. I don't count the Miranda Maverick win again. She did not win that fight. And her fight before that, Hannah Cypher, 2018, round two TKO win. She came in as a minus 425 favorite. Hannah is 10 and 7 overall. And then how does she get to UFC? Her Dana White contender series win 2018, a round three TKO win over Jamie Colleen. She was a minus 500 favorite in the Dana White contender series matchup. Gives you an idea of what was going on there. As for Jamie Colleen, she loses her next fight against Miranda Granger. That was in CFFC. She hasn't fought since 2019, and Jamie has a career record of 5-3. and three. That was the girl that Macy Barber beats as a minus 500 favorite to get into the UFC. There's a pattern there. 
She's fought okay fighters. And again, Hannah Cypher's decent name. We know of her. J.J. Aldrich, probably her best win. Jillian Robertson, okay prospect. Roxanne Mataferi, very old. Alexa Grasso beats her ass. And so does Miranda Maverick. She should be 0-3 in her last three fights. The things I like about Macy Barber, she does have finishing power in her hands, especially when she gets in close and closes the distance. She can land with power. She could take a few punches. She's pretty durable if she can close distance. And I want to note this. In one of her recent prior fights, actually against Miranda Maverick, you can hear one of her coaches in her corner, her head coach, saying, you've got to actually fight her. You've got to actually hit her, like as in the most basic of direction. You've got to actually fight her and hit her. Maybe it's just me. I'm seeing it from a different angle. She comes off at times as if someone who does not want to fight. Doesn't want to engage. She's way too far away. Is that intimidation? Is it cautiousness? Is it for high fighter IQ? I can't think of it as fighter IQ when your coach is in the corner telling you, you have to hit her. You have to fight. That should be fighting 101, right? You're in a fight. You should want to fight as in engage them. Macy Barber spends a lot of time punching the air, does not engage, can't close distance, doesn't understand it's a fight. You got to fight the person in front of you. And instead of doing what you should be doing, fighting, she has decent takedown offense, more from tripping. She looks like she's got the build of a wrestler, but doesn't wrestle very much. She has 1.36 takedowns per 15 minutes. Not a high number, not as high as her opponent here, Montella De La Rosa. But when she gets a body lock, she is very strong. She looks very strong. She has a strong physique and her trips do seem to be effective. She does have good head movement. You can tell she's working on her boxing and her boxing is probably her best attribute, not a big body kicker or leg kicker has some front kicks her most likely path to hurt someone is going to be with her hands now my concerns for macy barber she's facing pretty weak competition it's been very convenient for her for example her one and only amateur fight was against an opponent who got a two and five amateur career and never went pro look at the topology photo of that person does that person look a fighter the combined record of the opponents that she fought before Dana White contender series 15 and 16 under 500 the combined record of her opponents that she has defeated in ufc excluding miranda maverick 36 and 21 She's not fought very good competition, and when she fights better competition, she comes up short. Again, she should be on a three-fight losing streak, in my opinion. I mentioned before, she spends a lot of time punching the air. She cannot close distance. Look at the Grosso fight. I can't say it enough. She's not even close to Grosso, and she's punching. Not fainting, punching, kicking. Grosso's looking at her like, you're not even close, dude. What are you doing? Why are you throwing punches and kicks? That's a very low fighter IQ move, and suggests to me there's other factors, like is she scared to close a distance? Does she have a vision problem? And two more points about Barber. Her father has been in her corner since the beginning. He's been there throughout her entire martial arts career. The word on the street is that he's a bit controlling, a little bit of a helicopter type of parent. She's also changed gyms a lot, especially for only a 23-year-old fighter. She's been an alpha male, Rufus Sport, and Fort Collins of May. Her Wikipedia says she's out of Milwaukee, so I assume she's out of Rufus Sport. But again, gym hopping at a young age, controlling father, not a good dynamic. As for Montana De La Rosa, she was born in Montana, but she grew up in Azale, Texas. She's currently based out of Fort Worth, Texas. Cool. She was a three-time All-American in wrestling in high school. She briefly attended Oklahoma State University on a wrestling scholarship, but since she was a teenage mother, she decided to transfer back to Texas to be closer to her family. After coming back to Texas, she enrolled immediately into Tarrant, County College, where she graduated in 2013. Following her graduation, she got right into mixed martial arts. She's had a brown belt BJJ. She went pro 2014. She's a former Extreme Fighting League flyweight champion. She's earned performance of the night one time in the UFC. She's married to Mark De La Rosa, who's currently a UFC fighter, and she has one daughter from a prior relationship. Her most notable opponent in her background, she fought Aaron Lipsky last year, 2021, won the fight via TKO. Very impressive showing. She comes in as a minus 280 favorite, dominates Lipsky with the ground and pound, with the wrestling, takes her down both round one and round two. Eventually, Lipsky's cut up both eyes. You got Montana De La Rosa on top, full mount position, just landing ground and pound strikes, hammer fists, the fight gets stopped. That's the best version of Montana De La Rosa. Will she do that to Macy Barber? I don't think it'll be that easy. I think Macy Barber's a little stronger than Aaron Lipsky, will make it a little bit tougher for her to take it down. But in the best version of Montana De La Rosa, that's really 
it looks like. Now, her prior fight against Bueno Silva. Here's what me a little bit aggravated. If you watch this fight, the judges robbed her in this fight. She should have won the fight. It goes to a draw. She comes in as a minus 120 pick him. In round one, she's about to take down Silva. Silva grabs the cage aggressively. Super duper grab. Ref steps in right away, does the right thing. Takes a point from Silva. At this point now, it's an equal round no matter how you look at it. But I believe that Montana Del Rosa goes on to win that round. She wins round one. That should have been a 10-8 round one. Instead, all three judges gave it a 9-9. Complete bullshit. If you watch that round, De La Rosa wins the round. A point gets taken away from Silva. All three judges give it 9-9. Now, how does she win round one? She has control time. She's pushing the pace. She's going forward. Does Silva land a few things? Yes. But again, the pace position control was on the side of De La Rosa. I want to point out, it's my opinion that Bueno Silva is also a better fighter than Macy Barber. So if you're looking at this fight just in a vacuum, I thought De La Rosa did enough to win the fight. At the least, it goes to draw. But again, Bueno Silva, in my opinion, she beats Macy Barber. All three judges had Rosa winning round two. Okay, we're good there. She had some takedowns, some top control position. Now, when it comes to takedown defense, is Bueno Silva better than Macy Barber? Probably not. I think Macy Barber's a little better at takedown defense. After the second takedown in round two by Rosa, she does not let Silva up for the rest of the round. She finishes in a very controlling position, who clearly wins the round. All two judges give her round two. Round three starts up. Here we have Rosa out there working in the clinch, working for takedowns, has Silva up against the fence. She gets a very brief takedown in round three, like a 10-second takedown. Silva jumps back up, but it's a takedown. She's got her against the fence. Again, control times on the side of Rosa. Here's where, again, the judges completely screwed over Rosa. Eric Colon, whoever this judge is, dude should be banned from judging. He gives it a scorecard of 10-8 for Silva in round three. How is that fucking possible? How is it fucking possible that Rosa gets two takedowns in round three, finishes on top in round three. Like the last 30 seconds, she's on top in round three. And this dude, Cologne, whoever this dude is, gives it a 10-8. There was no one knocked down. No one was seriously hurt. It was a 10-9 round, however you put it. Again, Rosa gets two takedowns. Silva gets none. Rosa finishes round three on top. And this asshole gives it 10-8 for a score. Della Rosa won this fight. They robbed her, just like they robbed Miranda Maverick. Women's MMA, be careful with this fight. It's my opinion Della Rosa wins the fight. Doesn't matter what I think. They've both been in fights before recently where either they won or lost and it wasn't counted as a win or loss. Her prior fight before that, she fought Vivian Araja, 2020 decision loss. She came in as a plus 165 underdog. She gets outclassed in that fight. She cannot bring Araja down. Araja's faster, quicker. That would be the best version you could imagine of Macy Barber. If Macy Barber could emulate what Vivian Araja did in that fight, that would be Macy Barber's path to victory. Montana De La Rosa, she cannot win the fight if it's on the feet the entire time. Now, some prior opponents that are notable. She fought Mackenzie Dern, 2017 round one submission loss. Cynthia Cavalu, 2017 round three TKO loss in LFA. And Andrea Lee, 2019 decision loss in the UFC as a plus 145 pick -em. So she's fought the better competition. No question here. Montana De La Rosa has the experience advantage. They're both fairly young. Both in their 20s. Macy Barber has been the hype. They've been hyping her up now for a while as the future. But in this fight, when you look at experience, fighter IQ, wrestling ability, takedown ability, top control, Rosa should have the advantage. Some things I like about De La Rosa, she trains with some excellent fighting partners. Raquel Pennington, Tisha Torres, Lauren Murphy. She's also fought the better competition. We mentioned some of the names before. Andrew Lee, Mackenzie Dern, Cynthia Cavallo, Vivian Arajo, Marina Buela Silva, Aaron Lipsky. In this matchup, she'll have a two to three inch height and reach advantage. Not a huge factor, but with Macy Barber, who has a hard time closing distance, it could be a little bit of a factor in terms of Montana being able to neutralize the striking offense of Macy Barber. And last but not least, she's got some pretty good submissions. She's got five of her 12 wins have been by submission. Does she submit Macy Barber? Kind of tough. Macy Barber is a thick girl. She is very tough, very durable, has never been finished before. I just don't see Montana De Rosa submitting her. I see her getting some top control, position control, clinch control. Those are her path to victory. The only two weaknesses I see for De La Rosa is, can she actually overpower and get a body lock and take down a strong opponent like Barber? That's a question mark. And secondly, she has very limited striking power. And if you watch her fight, her striking is okay. It's not perfect. 
She has a wrestling background, as we talked about, but she's never had a TKO finish. You got Barber here, where her first three UFC fights had finishes by TKO. So the striking power is clearly on the side of Macy Barber. Some of the fights we watched right on this film, we watched Macy Barber versus Maverick 2021, Macy Barber versus Grosso in 2021, and Macy Barber versus Modafferi in 2020. The fights we watched for Della Rosa, we watched her versus Lipsky last year, her versus Buena Silva last year, and then her versus Arajo in 2020. If you're watching on YouTube, go down below in the description, you're going to see those six links available for those six prior fights as part of our free video library. The last few notes have these two fighters are side-by-side comparisons. Experience-wise, give the edge to Montana De La Rosa. Obviously, fought a few more fights, has fought some better opponents. As for fighter IQ, I give the edge also to Montana De La Rosa. It appears to me at times as a Macy Barber has a hard time engaging. She's been a little bit weird in her corner at times where she's been, I want to say argumentative, but a little bit sort of out of sorts. She seems a bit fragile. So again, fighter IQ, I give the edge there to Montana De La Rosa. Cardio, they both check out. Both pretty tough fighters, both can go to distance. I expect this fight probably goes to distance. For finishing, I give an edge to Macy Barber. She's got some early finishes her UFC career. She's got hands. Montana De La Rosa is a decision point type of fighter. That's her path to victory. For boxing, I give an edge as well to Macy Barber. She just simply hits harder. And for De La Rosa, she'll tell you. She butters her bread on the ground. For grappling, I give the edge to Montana De La Rosa. And for who has more heart? For young fighter Macy Barber, she's displayed a lot of heart in the past. She's fought through injuries. For Montana De La Rosa, she's fought with a beat up face, swollen eyes, the whole thing. So both fighters check out heart-wise. I expect a pretty tough fight that goes all three rounds. Some facial damage, some bleeding. It's going to be a good fight. The best spot to bet in this fight is the minus 230 spot for the fight going the distance. It's a women's bout. It's going to an ugly split decision. At some point, you don't want to be holding either ticket. Just take the minus 230 at the fight going the distance. Two more props to look at would be Macy Barber by decision or De La Rosa by decision. That's the breakdown, guys. I'm sorry to get so frustrated. These girls have both fought fights in the recent past that were not scored correctly. I don't want to paint a big brush here on mixed martial arts for women and say, oh, they're all bad decisions. The judges always mess it up. But damn it, some of these women's fights are just so frustrating. In the case of Montana De La Rosa, that fight against Bruno Silva, how in the hell does Eric Colon give it a 10-8 third round for Silva? That's just blasphemy. That guy should never be allowed to judge again. In the case of the Maverick fight versus Macy Barber, whoever gives that fight to Macy Barber, you should be fired. Don't ever be able to judge again. Anyway, guys, that's the breakdown. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. We'll see you on the flip side. Next up in the car, we've got a lightweight battle at 155 pounds between Clay Guida, the American fighter, and Claudio Puelas from Peru. Puelas goes by El Nino. El Nino has like three different meanings. It could be the Christ of child, literally in Spanish it means little boy, or it's the weather phenomenon. In any case, he goes by El Nino. 11-2 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. He hails from Lima, Peru, 26 years old, 5 foot 11 in height with a 72 inch reach. He's out of Pitbull Martial Arts Center. As for Mr. Guida, who goes by the Carpenter, 37-21-0. Hell of a fighter, been around for a long time. He's 2-3 in his last five fights. He hails from Johnsburg, Illinois, 40 years old compared to 26 year old Claudio Puelas. You have a 14 year difference there in age. He's 5'7 in height with a 70 inch reach. He's going to give up about 4 inches in height and about 2 inches in reach. He's out of Elevation Fight Team in Colorado. As for the numbers coming in on Tapology, the votes are coming in on the side of Puelas. 71% to be exact, only 29% coming in for Guida. We disagree. I think Guida, the old man, reversed the clock, get the win over the younger opponent. We'll talk about why, but specifically the wrestling, I think is going to be his big advantage in this fight. As for the striking numbers, these guys have a lot in common. They both have negative striking ratios. For Guida, he's landing 2.53 per minute, absorbing 2.76. As for Puelas, he's landing 2.07 per minute, absorbing 2.98. It lends to the way they fight, their fighting style. Both these guys are wrestlers slash grapplers. Guida being more the wrestler and Puelas being more the jiu-jitsu guy who works from his back. And because of that, their striking numbers are negative and their striking output is not very high volume. As for takedown offense, Guida's landing 3.26 takedowns per 15 minutes and for Puelas landing 2.87. Again, both guys are pretty active around three takedowns per fight. Then the wrestling advantage is on the side of Guida, which we'll talk more about, but the submission advantage would be on the side of Puelas. For takedown defense, Guida's a little bit better, 68% for takedown defense. On the other side, 55% for Claudio Puelas. Now, Puelas is the kind of fighter where he will pull guard. That has its positive and negatives. Obviously, he's got some submission 
and ability. The problem is you can lose some rounds or part of rounds being on your back. Okay, let's talk about the background of these two fighters. For Clay Guida, he was born and raised in Illinois to an Italian family, hence the last name Guida. He began wrestling at the age of five years old. He was a three-sport athlete in high school. He went on to college to wrestle at Harper College, where he wrestled at 149 pounds. He's the younger brother of a fellow mixed martial artist, Jason Guida, who has since retired. He last fought in Bellator. When he isn't training or fighting himself, he does some coaching as well at a local high school. He's a fan of the Chicago Bears and Chicago Cubs, and he's a huge fan of the Grateful Dead band. And if you don't know, here's a little tidbit about Clay Guida. He started a national commercial for Safe Auto Insurance. He has earned Fight of the Night six times in UFC. He's also earned Submission of the Night three times in UFC. He had an amazing fight versus Diego Sanchez back in the day, which is already in the Hall of Fame. This will mark his 59th total mixed martial arts fight. He signed with the UFC 2006, long time ago. His UFC record right now is at 16 and 16. Looking at the background of Clay Guida on Tapology, he has fought the who's who. Guys like Charles Oliveira, Bobby Green, Jim Miller, Anthony Pettis, Rafa Dos Anjos, Nate Diaz, Mark Madsen recently, he's fought some of the best in the world. And some of those fights, he's won. He beat Pettis, for example. He beat Nate Diaz. He beat Rafael Dos Anjos. He lost to Charles Oliveira by submission. He lost to Brian Ortega by a TKO. Had a submission loss to Jim Miller. And also lost by decision to Bobby Green. But nonetheless, he has some quality wins in his background. He's fought the best of the best in the world. That should help him here. 40 years old, yeah, you can't ignore that. But he's in phenomenal shape. You got a guy here, 26 years old, Claudio Plus, who's not fought any of the likes of those type of opponents. So the advantage here for fighter experience, fighter IQ, ring generalship, all that stuff should be on the side of Clay Guida. Now looking at his more recent fights, he fought Santos in 2021, round two submission win. He took a beating in round one though. He did not look good in round one. It almost was stopped several times. He took a few knees to the face. He was getting overwhelmed. Fortunately for him, his gas tank checks out. He uses cardio as a weapon. And in round two, he comes out a lot fresher than Santos ends up going ahead and taking the advantage of that fight and ends up obviously fighting a submission win. Santos just gassed out. He wasn't prepared to go round two. He was just a round one fighter. You got Clay Guida here who is always in shape, always ready for a three-round fight. His prior fight, 2021, against Mark Madsen, loses that fight by split decision. Came in as a plus 140 underdog. Now, looking at what Madsen did recently, he looked pretty good, got another win. He's undefeated. That's not the worst split decision loss. It gives you an idea where Clay Guida's at right now. He's still very competitive at the age of 40, still competing with guys that are much younger than him, that are high caliber, that are undefeated. The thing about that fight, which was so interesting, these guys are both wrestlers, like both former wrestlers, both heavy backgrounds wrestling, and neither guy took the fight to the mat. That was a recipe for disaster for Kligwita. His boxing is a little rough at times. It's not his best attribute. It's what ends up happening there, even though Madsen's not the best striker either. Kligwita just simply gets outstriked at times, allows the harder punches, more cleaner punches, and Madsen gets the victory on his feet. Again, though, one judge thought he won the fight, and it was very close. The things I like about the veteran Guida, tremendous strength of schedule. Again, he fought the who's who of the business. You've got 58 total fights already. This will be his 59 total fight against a guy who's fought 13 fights. A big experience advantage there for him. He's also an excellent wrestler with good cardio. His wrestling doesn't die down over the course of the fight. He averages three takedowns per fight around the same range as Puelas, but I believe his wrestling ability, the takedown ability of his wrestling a little bit better than his opponent here. And as I mentioned before, cardio is a weapon for him. He's training the elevation fight team. Those guys are in good shape over there. He's going to be in the best shape he could possibly be. And yes, 40 years old, but not the typical 40 year old. The guy fights and wrestles like he's still in his younger thirties. He keeps himself in phenomenal shape. He has a solid lower leg kick, just doesn't use it enough for my liking. In this fight here, you're going to have a southpaw stance, Claudio Puelas versus the traditional stance, Clay Guida. Not going to be easy to land those strikes in the legs, but if he uses them more often, it could at least help him a little bit on scorecards. At 40 years old, he's not slowing down at all. He fought three times at MMA last year and one time in a grappling bout. 2020, he only fought one MMA bout. 2019, two MMA fights and two grappling bouts. The guy has multiple fights over the last few years in MMA and grappling. Very, very busy, not slowing down at all. 
Now, my concerns for Mr. Guida, Father Time is undefeated. He is 40 years old. He's clearly past his prime in terms of age. Still looks good, but his opponent is 26 years old, 14 years his junior. You've got to worry that at some point, round three gets harder. At some point, strength starts to diminish a little bit, and a younger fighter just has a little more in the gas tank. I think Pulez is a good fighter, good prospect. I think Clay Guida is still in very good shape, but the reality is he is 40 years old. That's got to be a factor when you're considering who's going to win this fight. His boxing technique isn't the best. Again, that's not how he really wins his fights anyway, but just putting it out there, Clay Pulez is going to have a striking advantage when it comes to clay guida his striking defense specifically is not very good again averaging 2.53 output receiving 2.76 has a negative striking ratio he throws very wide shots very off balance uses them as a way to close distance and get him for a takedown leaves his head wide open if he misses that punch he's sort of left out there in the open off balance and so his striking is again very archaic very typical of wrestlers who have a heavy wrestling base but don't have a good striking base he tends to lunge in when he goes to punch these big punches so he lunges in his head's wide open his head's down again very open for an uppercut a knee or some kind of a counter and last but not least these high energy punches these big lunging punches they do zap the gas tank he's got good cardio as we mentioned but still these are big lunging off balance punches which can add up over time and at 40 years old you just like to see him be a little bit more conservative with his punching and how he does it you like to see it down the pipe but he doesn't throw anything straight down the pipe it's always looping wild and look khabib had a whole career like this khabib went undefeated same kind of punching technique it's just that one punch to close a distance maybe it lands maybe it doesn't but you're off balance your head's out there against Puelas. A sharp striker, yes, very young, but he could catch Guida coming in with some of these punches where he's got his head out and he's lunging and leaning forward. Under pressure, I noticed that Clay Guida does that typical put your arms out and duck your head down. It's so wide open for an uppercut or a knee. If he gets overwhelmed like he did in the first round of his last fight, it's one of those situations where he's got to be careful he's not setting himself up for a knee or some type of uppercut strike. So again, ducks his head a lot, especially under pressure. And last but not least, the fight against Marco Madsen. I don't want to be too critical. It's just one fight. But why not at least try some takedowns? Your stand-up game is limited. It's not as good as even a guy as Marco Madsen. It was a low fighter IQ decision. Maybe he had an injury you didn't know about, but never even tried to get him down to the ground. That's his wheelhouse. Clay Guida has to get takedowns to win a fight. He has to have position control to win a fight, especially in the scorecards. He's not going to win because he's going to outstrike someone. And Claudio Puelas, who has a Muay Thai background, has better striking skills, has better combinations, has higher volume, and lands at a higher percentage. If he doesn't take the fight to the ground and can't get some control time, he's going to lose on judges' scorecards very easily. Now, as for Claudio Puelas, born in Lima, Peru, he's a southpaw. He began Muay Thai training at 13 years old. He has a 3-0 amateur record before going pro 2013. He fought exclusively in South America before he signed with the UFC 2016. He's a purple belt in Luta Livre. Luta Livre is a Brazilian form of grappling, submission, just another form of mixed martial arts, but it's basically grappling. Puelas competed in the third season of Ultimate Fighter Latin America, where he competed under Team Chuck Liddell. In that event, he won three fights, made the finals. Unfortunately, the finals, he loses to Martin Bravo via round two TKO. On paper, you're looking at it like, okay, Martin Bravo went one and three UFC, no longer in the UFC, not a great loss. If you watch the fight, he was just a little green, put it that way. And round one gets overwhelmed, can't deal with the pressure. And round two, it's a liver shot that drops him. And not that that's fluky, he was losing the fight anyway, but it was a liver shot that drops him. It wasn't like he got knocked out or TKO'd and got a head punch. A learning experience for him. Again, Martin Bravo is no longer in the UFC. He went 1-3 in the UFC. He has a 4-1 UFC record here in performance of the night against Felipe Silva in 2018. Some notable opponents for Claudio Puelas. He fought Chris Grutzmacher 2021, just last year, had a submission win. If you watch that fight, there's some highs, there's some lows. He came in as a minus 130 pick'em. He dominates round one, looks great, has top control, full mount, dropping down hammer fist, looked really good, was dominant in round one. On the feet, a big significant speed 
advantage, but he gave up position control several times in round two. What I mean by that is he has an opportunity to maybe keep ground position control, gives it up to go for a submission, allows Grutzmacher to sort of work his way back into the fight and definitely get some control time. Even more concerning, Chris Grutzmacher, he tends to slow down a lot. He's not a quick fighter even when he's fresh, but for example, in round three, Chris Grutzmacher does a spinning reversal position, gets back control, starts landing some good punches on Puelles. Puelles is sort of balled up, got his hands over his head, and you're like, well, what's going on here? Why is this younger fighter not getting up? What's he doing? Fight gets back to the feet, and now he gets a takedown, and he's on top of Puelles again. One big criticism I have of Puelles is he will work from his back too much. He will give up position for submission attempts, and against Grutzmacher, who I thought he was much better than in that fight, and obviously he wins, there were moments where Chris Grutzmacher was definitely in the fight. It was winning the grappling exchanges, was on top. Now, unfortunately for Grutzmacher, he's playing with fire, kind of like a Paul Craig type of guy, and eventually the knee bar submits him, and he has to tap out. But before the knee bar, that fight's way too close for me, in my opinion. And I compare Grutzmacher to Clay Guida, and I'm thinking, you know what? Clay Guida is a step up over Grutzmacher. He's a similar fighter, Grutzmacher. Not beautiful on the feet, kind of rugged, wants to make it ugly, but Grutzmacher is much slower and less athletic than Clay Guida and doesn't have the gas tank of Clay Guida. It's a good comparison. That's why I think, again, Clay Guida has the tools to win the fight. I know he's older, his boxing's not great, but that fight with players and Grutzmacher was just a few months ago, December, I believe it was. So about six months ago at the end of 2021. That gives us an idea for where he's at technique wise, how he deals with a guy who makes it ugly. Very comparable here to Clay Guida. His prior fight, Jordan Levitt, 2021 decision win. He came in a plus 170 underdog. That was a boring fight to watch, a lot like the last fight we just watched this weekend with Levitt. In that fight, Claudio shows two things. He can defend submissions. Clay Guida's not a submission guru. He has some submissions. If it gets to the point where it's a submission battle, I do trust Claudio Pelez will defend the submissions. He did a great job there against Jordan Levitt. That's all Jordan Levitt does. He lands the better strikes in that fight, no question, but Jordan Levitt is not a great striker. Again, like Clay Guida, if the fight's on the feet here, Claudio Pelez will have the advantage on the feet. Against Jordan Levitt, the big reason why Claudio Pelez wins the fight is because Levitt's the kind of guy who also likes to work from his back. He will give up position for submission attempts all the time. He spends almost half of round two on his back. All of round three, Jordan Levitt is on his back. Just losing that round on his back, not landing anything, trying to go for submissions. And you see Claudio Pelez, who's again, very proficient on the ground, has a very good base in grappling. That was what he was predominantly doing in South America before he signed with the UFC. Even though he started off with Muay Thai as a teenager, he's transitioned over strictly to be more of a grappler. His striking is good, but his grappling technique is how he's getting his finishes now. And his first UFC fight from six years ago, the fight that was on the Latin American Ultimate Fighter, 2016 TKO loss to Martin Bravo, came in as a minus 115 pick him. Both guys were very young, unknown. He looked a little overwhelmed, as I mentioned before. A little green, he got just overwhelmed, too much forward pressure, and the liver shot drops him. You'll find the link for that fight down below in the description as part of our free video library. Now, the things I do like about Claudio Plus, he's going to have a 16-year youth advantage here over the 40-year-old fighter. That is a factor. Now, is it enough of a factor? I don't know, but it's clearly not a benefit to Guida, and I think it's more of a benefit to Claudio Puelles. He's also a southpaw, which will create a little bit of an adjustment for Clay Guida. Now, I think Clay Guida's fought everyone in their mother, so he will be fine. He's fought guys like Nate Diaz and got out of there with wins, and guys like Anthony Pettis. But the reality is here, southpaw's always a little bit of an adjustment, and Clay Guida does not excel on his feet. He has a hell of a submission game. He has two submission wins via knee bar in his last four fights. Six of his 11 pro wins are by submission. And if you count his amateur career, eight submissions out of 14 total fights. Clearly, again, that's where he's buttering his bread. He also seems to have a solid chin. He's only been finished one time in 13 total fights. That was a round two TKO loss in his UFC debut 2016. And again, that wasn't a head strike. That was a liver shot. So technically, he's never been like KO'd, buzzed, or concussed by another fighter in the octagon. And it's never been submitted. So it has pretty good durability. And he's got pretty good takedown offense, averaging about 2.87 takedowns per fight. Is he as good at takedown? Does Guida, does he shoot as well? No. Matter of fact, if you watch one of the fights with Puelles, I think DC's commentating, and of course DC has a wrestling background, and he mentions how his takedown attempts are a little bit raw. They're not quite clean. Sometimes he's on his knees trying to grab legs. Now, Clay Guida, a little more of a fine-tuned wrestler. So if you're talking about takedown comparison, who's better? I have to imagine Guida's the better takedown artist. Now, grappling, 
Going to be interesting there. That's where I think Clay Guida maybe has a power advantage when it comes to submission ability to the edges on Claudio Puelas. few weaknesses I see for Claudio Puelas. Number one, he's fighting a veteran here, a guy who's fought the best of the best in the world, former champions. You can't erase the fact that this guy has fought 58 mixed martial arts fights, only 13 for Puelas. So he's got a lot of experience to overcome. At times, I feel like Claudio Puelas stands a little bit tall. Now, he's gotten better with his stance. If you look at the fight against Bravo 2016, six years ago, he's standing very tall. His cardio is not as good. His last few fights against Grutzmacher and Levitt shows a better stance, a little bit more bent knees, a little bit more under control, ready to defend the takedowns, but still stands a little bit tall. And in the fight against Grutzmacher, for example, late in the fight in round three, he gets taken down pretty easily. Clay Guida is coming full force the entire three rounds, looking for takedowns, looking to grind out the fight. If he doesn't shore up his takedown defense, he's going to have a problem here. It'll look a lot like the Vincente Luque fight. Luque, who may be the better striker, Luque may have hurt Muhammad on the feet, but the bottom line is Muhammad got a takedown in almost every round of that fight, got position control, top time. That's the path to victory for Clay Guida in this fight. And last but not least, if he fights the way that he fought against Chris Grutzmacher, I'm talking exactly that way, he's going to come up short in the scorecards. Not going to get a knee bar against Guido. Guido is a little bit more powerful than Grutzmacher, a little more energy. If he doesn't make adjustments from that fight to this fight and gets taken down, gives up position, gets in his back, Guido is a better wrestler than Grutzmacher. He's got more in the gas tank, a better overall fighter, more experienced. If he fights that way, I believe he comes up short in the scorecards and he loses his fight by two rounds to one. The fights we watched to break down this film, we watched Guido versus Santos, 2021, Guido versus Madsen, 2021, and Guido versus Johnson from 2021. For players, we watched him versus Grutzmacher last year, we watched him versus Levitt last year, and we watched him against Bravo back in 2016. To watch those six fights, you'll find the links down below as part of our free video library. The last few notes to have these two fighters. For Clay Guida, he's going to have the experience advantage and IQ advantage. We can't ignore the fact that he's fought 58 total fights compared to 13. For cardio, Clay Guida has a great gas tank. But here's where age becomes a factor. He is 40. This young man is 26. I think the cardio here should be about even. Does either guy look very tired in round three? I don't think so. I think the fatigue will be about the same in round three. For finishing ability, I do give an edge to Claudio Puelas. Again, two knee bar finishes in the last four fights, has a good finishing percentage. Now, Clay Guido, it's a grinded out style, right? He's not looking to knock a guy out. He's not looking to submit a guy unless it's right there for him. I think in this fight, he avoids submissions and looks for ground control, tries to win on the scorecards via points. For boxing, Clay Guida has never been a very good boxer. He'll probably tell you that himself. For Claudio Puelas, he's going to have a striking advantage in terms of technique, volume, higher percentage land. For grappling, here's where it depends on how you define fine grappling. If we're talking about on the ground, submissions, grappling, Claudio Puelas is the better fighter. If we're talking about who gets the takedowns, I believe that's for Guida. So this fight could work out this way. You can have Guida with the takedowns, some position control, but Puelas gets a win by a submission. Or you have Guida with position control and takedowns, and he gets the win because he's on top. And last but not least, who has more heart? Who has more passion? I got to imagine Guida has a small edge there. He's 40 years old. The guy's fighting like two, three times, four times a year between grappling and MMA. Puelas is only 26. We don't know yet on him. The book's not out. He looks good. Looks pretty tough. He's got 11-2 record. Looks formidable. On a four fight winning streak after losing his UFC debut. But ask me in 14 years from now, is he 40 years old and still fighting? I can't take that from Guida. Guida is an animal. He's a coach. He's in phenomenal shape. I'm going to get from the edge there in heart. This gets to a round three fight where it's very close. He's going to have enough to edge out Claudio Puelas. And maybe he tests the heart and the passion of this younger fighter. There's the breakdown, guys. I like the veteran Claudio Puelas at 40 years old to get a win here by decision, by grappling and wrestling position control. As for some props to consider here, I think this fight goes to distance. These guys are both very durable. They're grapplers. I see some low moments in the fight maybe a little boring at times but look at the prop for the fight going the distance the other two props i have to look at is clay guida by decision or claudio plus by submission that's the breakdown ladies and gentlemen thanks for joining us please like and subscribe if you haven't done so already and give us some feedback what do you think are we off here does claudio plus the younger fighter have the edge am i giving too much stock to clay guida and his veteran background all right guys thank you so much for joining us The main event for UFC Vegas 52 is going to be a women's strawweight bout at 115 pounds between two Brazilian fighters, Amanda Lemos and Jessica Andrade. Lemos is 11-1-1 overall, 5-0 in her last five fights. 
34 years old in 11 months. You're thinking she's the younger fighter in terms of experience, but she's actually four years older than Jessica Andrade. Lemos is five foot four in height with a 65 inch reach. She's out of Majaro Brothers team. As for Andrade, who goes by Bata Estaca, which means pile driver. We'll talk about how she got that nickname. 22 and nine overall, two and three in her last five fights, 30 years old. Five foot one in height with a 62 inch reach. She's out of Parana Veltudo. As for the numbers on Tapology, the former champion is getting the votes here. 78% to be exact coming in for Andrade, only 22% coming in for Lemos. I get it. We like Andrade too. But Lemos is a pretty good fighter. She's got a lot of tools in the bag. Again, surprising she's four years older than Andrade, but she's still a very good striker. She sits down really hard in her punches. We'll talk about this breakdown here as to why we like Andrade, though. As for striking numbers, Lemos is landing 5.35 strikes per minute, observing 4.67 compared to 6.24 landed for Andrade and 5.21 received for Andrade. So both ladies have positive output. For takedown offense, Lemos is landing 1.31 takedowns per 15 minutes and 2.90 for Andrade. A little more of a takedown offense there for Andrade. Lemos is not much of a grappler. You know, she's a Brazilian fighter but she's not much of a grappler or wrestler a little surprised she even has one and a half takedowns or about one and a half takedowns for 15 minutes now for Andrade this will be part of the path to victory can she take down Lemos early wear her down a little bit and then drag her into deeper waters to round four and five where Lemos has never been before Lemos does have 87% takedown defense very good that will be tested in this fight and 66% on the other side for Andrade let's talk back on these two fighters for Lemos born in Brazil her initial love of sports was actually soccer before she moved over to martial arts she began her MMA career in the local scene down in Brazil in jungle fighting. She once served a USADA suspension in 2018 for one year for testing positive for some type of vitamins, something that was in her system that shouldn't have been. She's the former jungle fight bantamweight champion. She signed to the UFC in 2017. She lost her UFC debut to Leslie Smith via round two TKO. It's down below in the description if you want to see the link there to that fight. Basically, she gets worn out, and that's kind of a constant theme with her. When she comes up short in her fights, her cardio becomes a factor. She wears herself out, starts off really strong, but then if she can't get her opponent out of there in round one, it becomes a little bit of a drag for her. It gets a little tougher for her in rounds two and three, or four and five in this case. She's 5-1 in the UFC with five straight wins, so after her first loss in the UFC, Leslie Smith, she's gotten a five-fight winning streak. She went fight of the night in her last fight against Angela Hill, which went to a full three rounds. That was about five months ago. Pretty good fight. In round one, she knocks down Angela Hill. Nice front kick, nice combination. But again, ends up being a dragged out fight where it could go either way. And she wins by split decision over Angela Hill. The most notable opponents in the career of Amanda Lemos. She fought Angela Hill last year, 2021 split decision win. She came in as a minus 300 favorite. Prior to that fight, she fought Montserrat Ruiz, 2021. Won that fight round one KO as a minus 600 favorite. Her fight before that, Lavana Souza, 2021. Round one KO win as a minus 225 favorite. So last year was a good year for her. She had three wins, three fights where she came in as a favorite. And last but not least, Leslie Smith, 2017. About five years ago, her UFC debut comes in as a plus 175 underdog. Start off great she looks good initially but then she starts to wear down round two she gets a tko loss the things i like about lamos the obvious things she's an amazing power striker both with her feet and her hands she really sits down on her punches and her kicks so she throws her a lot of power and because of that three of her last five wins have been by some type of finish now keep in mind it's 115 pounds strawweight division this woman has a lot of power to be knocking out her opponents in this division and even though she didn't beat Angela Hill by a knockout in the last fight, she does knock her down in round one and gets close to getting a TKO where Angela Hill's on her back, trying to, you know, basically protect herself. For Amanda Lemos, one of her best qualities by far is her striking power. She also has a very intimidating, aggressive stance. She stands very heavy, which could be a problem with someone who attacks the front leg. Not a lot of high volume, but when she strikes, she's coming with bad intentions. That could be intimidating for a lower level or rookie opponent. Not in the case of Jessica Andrade, but for lower level opponents, when she's fighting people like Montserrat Ruiz, Lavana Souza, they look intimidated in those situations. Now, when she went against Leslie Smith in her debut, Leslie Smith, tough SOB. She wasn't going to be back down. Even Angela Hill didn't back up, took the best of her, and kept the fight going. But again, younger competition that's intimidated. That stance she has where she's standing really heavy on her feet, it looks scary. And last but not least, she's a very active fighter, right? She fought three times last year. You like to see that. Here we go early in 2022. She's fighting again. I'm sure she'll fight one or two more times again this year. Now, the weaknesses for Amanda Lemos, there's not many of them, but she does stand heavy. We mentioned before, right? So that front leg, that's open and available to kicks. 
Now, she tends to have the reach advantage over her opponents, and she will have the reach and height advantage in this fight. But Jessica Andrade is a veteran. She can close distance. If she attacks that front leg, she's heavy on it. It could be a problem. On top of standing heavy on her front leg, she stands heavy in general. So she sits down hard on her punches. She's got a lot of power. But if she doesn't move her head very well, starts getting tired, she becomes a, a very easy target, put it that way. Doesn't have any type of unique footwork. It's pretty heavy on the feet. And so again, so again, she's open to getting takedown. She's open to get body locks on her. She's open to get hit in her front leg. So it's one of the things where I think she has to evolve. She has to get a little lighter on her feet at times, be able to move in and out of range, move out of the way of her opponent's strikes. In this fight, we're going to see her test it. Jessica Andrade is a veteran. She's going to test that ability for her to move. As for Jessica Andrade, also born in Brazil, she grew up working on her family's farm. Her first love in sports was soccer. She played it throughout her teenage years, actually got a pro offer to join Sao Paulo Club. Unfortunately, her family stepped in and said, you're too young. We don't want you going from home. Please stay next to us. So she passed on that offer, kept going through high school, started judo training and jiu-jitsu in high school. And that was her initial entry into mixed martial arts. Jessica Andrade earned the nickname Bata Escaza, which in Portuguese means power driver, because in one of her first BJJ matches, a grappling bout, her opponent had an arm bar on her and she freaked out picked up the opponent, slammed him down, got disqualified. And so her teammates, some of her first teammates were like, nicknamed her the power driver. Ironically, years later, she would pick up Rose Namajunas, slam her ass on the ground and knock her out to get a win in that fight. It's amazing how that nickname that she got when she was very young as first started has kind of stuck with her. She does slam her opponents to the ground. She's a very good wrestler. She's currently the number one UFC women's flyweight contender. She's the number six UFC pound for pound female fighter in the world. She's the former UFC strawweight champion. She's earned performance of the night four times in UFC. She's also earned fight of the night four times in UFC. She's the second most finishes in UFC women's strawweight history, has the most KO finishes in UFC women's strawweight history, has the most fights in all of US women's history with 20. She's the only woman in UFC history to have wins in three different weight divisions. Andrade is one of the most accomplished UFC women to ever fight in the octagon and a shoo-in for the Hall of Fame in the future. Some of the names you'll recognize in the background of Jessica Andrade, she fought Valentina Shevchenko last year, round two TKO loss, she came in as a plus 360 underdog. Caitlin Chu Kaglin, 2020, round one TKO as a minus 160 favorite. Rose Namajunas, part two, when she did the rematch, 2020 split decision loss, she was a plus 175 underdog. Not bad going the full distance against Rose, who's now the current champion for a split decision loss. Prior to that, Wally Zhang, round one TKO loss as a minus 160 favorite. And then before that, her first fight with Rose Namajunas, 2019, where she wins via round two body slam, knocks out Rose from just a body slam. She came in as a plus 175 underdog. So it goes without saying, she's fought the best of the best. Some former champions, current champions, the best of the best in the division. She's got some losses, but she's got some wins. The things I like about Jessica Andrade, obviously she has the better strength of schedule. She's fought the best in the world. Her finish over Kaitlyn Chukagan, not to be overlooked. Chukagan has only been finished twice in her 21 mixed martial arts fights. The two times she was finished, Valentina Shevchenko and Jessica Andrade. She's not easy to get out of there, and that was a round one body shot by Jessica Andrade that cripples Caitlin Chukagan, gets her out of there pretty early in round one. It gives you an idea of how much power Jessica Andrade has in her striking. She's coming off of a dominating first round TKO win over Cynthia Cavallo. That's an example of when you put Jessica in there against average to above average opponents, she cleans them up. She goes forward, she's aggressive, I don't think Amanda Lemos is just an average fighter. I think she's very much a good contender. But in this fight here, I wouldn't be surprised if you see Jessica Andrade, a lot of confidence come out and treat her the way she kind of treated Cynthia Cavallo. And last but not least, her cardio is excellent. I think there's a big advantage here for Jessica Andrade. She's fought in longer fights, been to championship rounds. You see Lemos kind of kind of teeter off at times in fights. Whereas Jessica Andrade keeps pushing the pace. She has the experience. If this fight gets at around two, no question, Jessica Andrade is going to have a gigantic advantage from a cardio standpoint and an experience standpoint. Again, having fought in the championship rounds before, Lemos hasn't been there yet. My concerns for Jessica Andrade, she does seem to have some durability issues. What I mean by that is five of her nine losses have been some type of finish. It's 115 pounds women's division, one of the smallest divisions in all of mixed martial arts. Yes, she's fighting the best of the best. Wally Zhang and Rose and these type of fighters, Shevchenko. But the bottom line is she tends to get finished 
Amanda Lamos does hit hard. I would imagine the best path to victory for Lamos is going to be to hurt Andrade at some point. Now, can she? Not sure, but it is there. It's in her background. Jessica Andrade has been finished before. She's been knocked out, finished early, and also submitted early. Jessica's also on a bit of a tough stretch. She's lost four of her last six bouts, if you include her grappling bout. This will be an important win for her to get back on the winning side. We mentioned she fought the best in the world, but here's a list of people that she's lost against. Raquel Pennington, Mana Renault, Joanna Jetcheresic, I can't say that name, I always butcher it, Liz Carmouche, Jennifer Maya, Shevchenko, Nam Yunus, and Zhang. What do they all have in common? These are some of the most elite fighters in the world. So that's not so bad, but it's also kind of a reflection that maybe she's a tier below that. She had the win against Rose when she slammed her down. Kind of a fluky win if you think about it. Slam, knocked her out, whatever. But the reality is she loses against people like Pennington and Renault and Carmouche and Maya Shevchenko. It just tells me that she may be one of the best in the world, just right below the elite in the world. Not really a criticism, but just an obvious take. Now, is Amanda Lamos at that level? I don't think so. I don't think Amanda Lamos is at the level of Nama Yunus or Zhang or Carmouche or Pennington. But still, I think Andrade is a level above where Lamos is at right now. Now, for Andrade, she'll be the smaller fighter here. Smaller in reach, smaller in height. That's common for her. She's got very thick legs. She tends to be the shorter fighter. Watch her prior fights. She knows how to close distance. It shouldn't be a problem for her. Now, for Lamos, she does have good striking, maybe the better natural technique for striking. She can use that range to begin the fight. That could be a problem. Now, this goes for both fighters. They can't be in the pocket just trading. If they do that, they're going to be open to get encountered opening and hurt. For Andrade, same thing. She tends to get into modes where she just says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to trade with this person in front of me. If she does that early in the fight, Lamos is no joke. She can clock her and vice versa. If you're rooting for Andrade, you want to see her take her time. Get this fight to round two. Get it to round three. Heck, get it to round five. I just don't see Lamos having the power and cardio to survive in those rounds, whereas I think Andrade will have that cardio. Lose round one, it's fine. Let Lamos blow her wide. Let her be aggressive. Throw spinning stuff. Throw big overhand rights. Slow her down. Get her to round two, round three. For the fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Lamos versus Hill, Lamos versus Ruiz, Lamos versus Souza, and Lamos versus Smith. We also watched Andrade versus Shevchenko, Andrade versus Chukagan, Andrade versus Namajunas 1 and 2, and Andrade versus Zhang. To watch those prior fights, check down below in the description. You're going to see nine links as part of our free video library. The last few notes I have these two fighters. For Jessica Andrade, she's going to have the experience, IQ, and cardio advantage. She'll also have a grappling advantage. There'll be a boxing advantage there for Lamos. I think her technique's a little better. Her combinations are sharper. She needs to throw more punches, but the power is, I think, in her side for her punching power, especially round one and two. The technique is sharp. For finishing ability, they both check out. I do like Lamos's finishing ability recently, but it's against fighters that are a little bit lower level, whereas Jessica Andrade has finished some higher-level fighters. So finishing-wise, about the same. Who has more heart? I think both these ladies are Brazilian badasses. They're going to come in there, get the best they can. Whoever if gets finished in this fight they're not gonna go out easily i do like andrage though the longer the fight goes on i believe she's gonna have the veteran experience the fighter iq experience having been there she's also younger it's weird to say lamos is about to be 35 andrage is only 30 years old so clearly right now for lamos it's now or never she's approaching her proverbial prime for andrage she's been in her prime now for a little bit and she still has a lot left in the tank and she's still pretty young for some props to consider the fight not going the distance i just don't see how this goes the full five rounds yes it's a women's bout i get it but i think at some point either lamos's carter becomes an issue or lamos catches andrage either the way i don't think it goes the full distance that's a prop to look at fourth or fifth round finish by jessica andrage back to our philosophy that lamo slows down gets tired i think if it goes to round four round five and jessica andrage has her cardio has a youth advantage i think she just finishes lamos in some kind of way where it's fatigue is the main factor that's the breakdown guys thanks for joining us if you haven't done so already please like and subscribe good luck with this fight give us some feedback let us know who you're on we like again jessica andrage at minus 170 to win the fight thanks again for joining us guys peace all right, ladies and germs, this is your captain speaking. Everyone buckle your seatbelts and get ready for your descent. Here we go with a summary of our picks, starting from the top. We like Jessica Andrade, Clay Guida, Montana De La Rosa, Manel Kopp, Alexander Romanov, Charles Jordan, Jordan Wright, Sergey Condoza, Tyson Pedro, Arichi Lang, Evan Elder, 
Marcin Prochnio, and Dean Barry. Those are our favorite picks to win in the card. The picks we like the most, the ones we have the most confident in. On the main card, we're going to start off with Jessica Andrade in the main event. We like Manel Kopp quite a bit. Of course, Alexander Romanoff and Charles Jourdain. Not as confident in Montana De La Rosa. I like her to win. I think she should win. But you know what? This women's MMA thing recently, I can't figure it out. And the co-main event, Clay Guida versus Claudio Puelas. You got a 40-year-old fighter. It's hard to get too much behind that. But we do like Clay Guida a lot. And he should win the fight. As for the premium card, the spots we like a lot. We like Tyson Pedro, but that's not a secret. At minus 650, we're not the only one to like him. We also like Avicii Lang at minus 225. We like Jordan Wright in the premium card, but not as much confidence in him. As for Sergey Honda Kondoska, hasn't been in the octagon for like three or four years. A lot of question marks there. And those first three fights in the card, beware. Evan Elder, Marcin Prachnel, Dean Barry. That's who we think's going to win, but man, I would not touch that with a 10-foot pole. Anyway, guys, that's the show for you. We appreciate your patience. We're trying to get these shows out on Monday and Tuesday just so hard. These deep dives, these backgrounds, compiling the numbers, their stats, everything. It just takes a lot of time, so we appreciate your patience, guys. Good luck with this card. Let us know what you guys think. What are your bets you're going to be placing? And don't forget to come back on Fridays for our prop show called Pick Your Poison. We'll go over the parlays we like. It's a prop bet you might want to consider. Thanks again for stopping by, guys. And deuces. Yeah,